Ready? What a fantastic death abyss. Hello and welcome to another rip-roaring episode of Pod Like a Hole Presents The Space Podity, where three men who are lifelong music fans and fans of the man we love to talk about, we go in random order by rolling a cursed diamond dice that we found on the side of the highway uh, that teleports us in time through David Bowie's career. It uh, somehow landed back into 1995, where we did discuss 1995 on our first season, where we discussed Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails. This would be during the first five-year gap between the Downward Spiral and the Fragile, but uh, that's old news. We're not going to be talking about that guy much tonight. Of course, we always find a way to talk about that man, Trent Reznor, but main focus... The main man, the gladiator in the center of the ring tonight is David Bowie. We're talking about the album Outside. And if you want to get technical, number one, Outside. And I'm sure Eric will fill us in on what that number one means. But before I do that, I better introduce the man I just said. Eric, are you out there? Are you inside or are you outside? I'm inside and... uh... Yeah, and I'm thinking about changing my name to Mr. Touchrick. But yes, hello. Happy to be here. Always a pleasure to hear from you in a distant land. Um, and also up in the foothills of Northern California, panning for gold, waiting for <laughs> that other mouth to feed to come on through as he makes his way down the Oregon Trail. Stephen Earl. This this will be the last time that you hear me extremely lucid and getting right to the point for quite some time, because that's what I always do around here. I, I am the one who holds this thing together with the, the most concise points of reference. And when this child's here, I, I apologize in advance. I I might sound delirious. So, you hmm. know, I just. With us. I wonder what we'll roll tonight, what album you're going to have to chew on for an extended period of time, because I'm sure it'll be a little bit before you get your sea legs back. We might be on a little bit of a break. I wonder which album you'll be saddled with there. Hmm. All right. Well, as Eric alluded to, if uh, you scrolled through your podcast feed and you're kind of taking stock on the uh, albums that we've talked about, if you've done your math correctly... You have seen that we've come close to the end. Uh, so the next two episodes, we could be either talking about Bowie's 1999 album, which from my memory was a snoozer, but maybe after going through it again, maybe I'll be wrong, but that's ours. And then catapulting back to 1977, it would be either Heroes. So... We're going out strong yeah, or we're going out with a whimper. We'll 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 have to see. So something tells me that the uh the, the reappraisal I may have given an album we're gonna talk about tonight will not be bestowed upon ours once we have to listen <laughs> to that one again. I I don't think uh 
I, I don't think I, you know, there's nothing in Thursday's child that I missed the first time around. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, but yeah. what if you have a new child on a Thursday? Then that's just gonna, it's See? just gonna warm that that song right up to you. There, there you go, Steve. Oh, the that, universe. That, that's either, that would either mean it it came four days late or uh, three days early. So <laughs> I don't like either of those. When when it comes to kids being born, I want the kid here the day we expect it, which is yeah. uh, a week from today. All right. <laughs> All righty. How exciting! Very exciting. Yeah. Very dangerous, as some adventure explorer would say. Um. So, you know, we I, uh, we bought a uh, bought a kitten today. Is that bought right? A, bought a kitten. Yeah. What a time to bring another animal into the world, into the <laughs> old Chambers Larson household. Another yeah. mouth to feed. <laughs> yeah. Having one responsibility uh, is not not enough. Oh, well, we figured that uh, our our current son, he's about to have to div- all attention will be divided and whatnot. So. Why not make him feel special and give him that cat he's been asking for for months? Uh, we'll see. Would you uh, name said cat? Uh, he named the girl Buddy. Buddy the cat. Buddy the cat. Nice job. It's great. Can't go good wrong. Name. It's strong it's kinda, name. It is a good name, but it, it is kind of confusing because I refer to him as Bud or Buddy more than I call him by his actual name, my son. So now I have to... It, 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 it screws up my whole... Uh, <laughs> workflow as a father this is a jokes on me i guess <laughs> when we were young uh my sister probably the same age that uh towns is now um when my parents got her a cat she was given the the duty to name it and she named it creatively <laughs> kitty bo bitty so uh, there you go it's a mouthful <laughs> Doesn't really slide off the tongue uh, there, but did it play authentic blues? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, More Delta blues. You wouldn't be familiar with that. (laughs) Oh boy! On a night train, chewing on a jelly roll. Yep. (laughs) So the year the year is nineteen ninety five. Yes. And yes, and luckily uh, for you, you listeners, we're not going to give you a history lesson twice. When we did our um, I thought when I was doing my my research for 95, some things were looking familiar. And we did this during our five year gap. So, yeah, dear listeners, lucky for you, you're not going to hear Eric uh, stumble upon this website and read all this shit for the first time unprepared tonight. If you want to hear that, you can go back and check out our 1995 episode, which would have been a. Well, that been gap. further down the, the spiral? Five the five, the five-year gap. Yeah. God was on top of it all. That's all. Let's let's just get into kind of where Bowie was uh, when he made this album because he was he was back a um, few years before that. He released Black Tie White Noise, and that was his return to solo work. After his uh, tin machine abortion, uh, abomination, whatever. He, uh, but he was still, uh, he was, he was back, uh, but he was lacking some sort of, he wasn't necessarily part of the zeitgeist. He, he needed some kind of uh, response from his fans or from, or he, 
from critics to kind of he wanted to do something a little bit more provocative. And he had not done that um, with Black Tie White Noise, as we discussed. Um, and he got married in 92 to Iman. And it was at that wedding where things started spinning. Literally, during the reception, Bowie took over the DJ booth and started spinning some of his new songs. And he that was right around Black Tie White Noise. He spinned the instrumental uh, acid jazz songs that Palace... Uh, those those two on there that are, names escape me now, um, but he started spinning those Alice two. Athena. There you go, there you go. He started spinning those two, and Eno was there, Brian Eno, and they had not seen each other in thirteen years. They weren't necessarily on the outs; it was just their collaboration had run its course during the Berlin trilogy. Obviously, some of his most respected albums, whatever they were doing, worked. But Eno was kind of known as being uh, controlling in the production studio, but also kind of like a trickster, like a chaos demon, because he was all about mixing it up, challenging people, forcing the guitarist to play bass and the drummer to sing or whatever, um, handing out flashcards with random ideas and everybody had to respond to it. Um, it was a whole, uh, essentially, you know, it was a whole social experiment making an album with Brian Eno, um, which Bowie needed to spread his wings a little bit. So they hadn't worked together in 13 years and there was Eno at the wedding, thoroughly enjoying Bowie's last dabble in electronic music and acid jazz. And Eno played a little bit the stuff he was making. And it was there. They, they, uh, they, they found a quiet corner and they, they cut each other's thumbs and made a blood oath in that minute that they would, that they would collaborate together on the next album and they would do something that nobody had ever heard before. They would wanted to push the limits. And one thing nobody wanted was an album full of pop songs. They really wanted to, to, to push the envelope. Um, and uh, then that was phase one. And I, I love that story. <laughs> I, I made up the part about the blood oath, but the rest, the rest is all is all legit. Um. I didn't look at what Brian Eno had been up to in the meantime, but I mean, I, I think he was deep into his ambient albums at this point, because when he first came out, he he wrote songs a little bit more, you know, structure, definitely electronic based rock. Um, and then he and then he went much more into the experimental ambient stuff. Uh, in the 80s, well, I mean, doesn't isn't he isn't he, uh, isn't he working with you, too, by this point? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, and I know he. He definitely produced what Zeropa, but what did he do another album for them, Mark? Uh, Zeropa was the one that came out in 1993. Um, so that one's the one that's really neighboring this one. But he's done a couple. Um, he's worked a couple times with uh, with you two. Top of my head, I can't recall. Um, our boy Flood, um, also who assisted Nine Inch Nails, also was working with. Uh, with the boys from uh, from Ireland, but right. yeah, yeah, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly which ones that he did. I want to say "Unforgettable Fire." I, I know he was probably on that one, or maybe it was okay. Daniel Danoy. Anyhow, but yeah. Zeropa is probably the one that is the one that's so close to this one. Yeah. Oh, and also from 1995, let's not forget about "Passengers" with Luciano Pavarotti. That's that's right. <laughs> wow. Uh, and of course, yeah. And, and as you as you, you brought well, hold up. Hold on. Hold on. Let's not let's not just blaze by Luciano Pavarotti. 
I mean, come on, the three tenors. Those guys were blowing up the 90s. I mean, I'm sure all our parents were fans of the three tenors. <laughs> uh, my parents were more in the chant. They, they were buying the chant albums by the Gregorian monks. But, um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure that there were some uh, some three tenors fans out there. Did they did they own the uh, the pure moods the CD? <laughs> I I don't know, but that that would fit right right in this conversation for sure. I don't know if they did. Eric, come on, or Mark rather. Uh, Anne was a fan of the Three Tenors, right? No, not Who really. Who's your favorite tenor? Uh, I mean, my favorite tenor. I mean, I guess it would be. Which one wasn't problematic? Which one uh, didn't get hit with Me Too? Oh, they all they all are. They're Italian. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're and sorry. hello to our listeners in Italy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it goes. Right, fine. There. I guess it was just. I guess. I guess my my mom was the one that was just a fan of the tenors and uh, the tenors. And who's the other guy? The blind guy, Andrea Bocelli. Yeah, he wasn't in there, but Big fan of him. Yeah. No, he he wasn't part of the three tenors, but it was all that that you know that that mid to late nineties uh, tenor tenor sensation Ooh. blowing up the charts. So the next phase in their collaboration together was, you know, I have to imagine Eno shouted something like, music later, inspiration first. And they had to get ideas. And so they actually spent some time in 94 going to a mental hospital in, in uh, Vienna. And um, they photographed and interviewed their patients and, um, and just started just collecting stories and, and ideas. And I think some of that came out in the lyrics, uh, you know, on this album, um, you know, yeah, I'd be interested to see the source material on that and see if it was just merely observation or if it was, I mean, these two, <laughs> two guys going into a mental hospital, just trying to get some crazy shit from the patients just seems a little exploitive, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was all, it was all, it was all supportive. That would be nice. That would be nice. Um, and then, sometime around then, Q Magazine reached out to Bowie and asked him to write a diary for 10 days. He was starting to record again, and they thought, hey, that would be a great feature for our magazine. We'd spread it out over many issues, and you know, or, or just make one big article about your diary entries and what you've been up to for 10 days. And Bowie's like, that's going to be extremely boring for anybody to read. So instead, I'm going to give you a story in pieces. And that's where he wrote the... Uh, Diary of Nathan Nathan Adler, an art ritual murder of Baby Grace Blue, a non-linear gothic drama hypercycle. Um, I I rather would have uh, would have read his diary myself. So, <laughs> sounds far more interesting than whatever became the, the, the what we mutated into these these damnable segues. But we'll get to oh, that. Damnable, you said. It's dead. Interesting. No, come on. Uh, like one of my favorite parts of uh, David Bowie's whole catalog is the opening of that Stars Are Out Tonight video where it's just him shopping at right. the, uh, the supermarket. Right. I find that much more interesting than a half-assed gumshoe thing. Yes, so. half-assed is fair because the story has no ending. 
And it could, you know, Bowie kind of said it's up to the listener to decide who done it. Um, but uh, if you listen to the B-side that's released just before this one, I kind of really, really break down the story. But because every song is, well, is allegedly from a different character in the story, um, just I'll summarize it really quick. Um, Bowie wanted to write about a future of 1999 um, where everything was controlled, including art. And um, to push back against that, the outsider artists started dabbling in art crimes, which started nonviolently and then escalated into art that depicted actual murder. Um, and the government had uh, investigators that would look into this, um, namely the title character, Bowie's alter ego here, Nathan Adler. And uh, a girl, Baby Grace Blue, died, and he sent to not investigate her death, but just help the police by collaborating and looking into, is it actually an art crime? Um, funny fun fact, in the original notes, Baby Grace Blue was Baby Grace Bellew, and um, Bowie claimed it was based after a girl that he knew that had a lot of problem always falling for the wrong guy. And... Uh, I believe it was based on Adrian Ballou's uh, actual teenage daughter <laughs> at the time. So <laughs> kind of uh, an asshole thing to do. <laughs> problematic. Yeah. Yes. What so is it, what uh, is the name of this? These are is it Artifa. Was that the, was that the group? Artifa. <laughs> so that sounds right. Artifa. <laughs> um, and Bowie also said that uh, <clears throat> he loved the idea of a millennium. Um, and this whole album is seeped in millennium anxiety and he looked out throughout history and when a millennium would come up, you know, tribal people would, would sometimes do a ritual to appease the gods, the millennium for a fresh start. So he, so he wanted to lace that into the story that maybe some of these violence was coming from people ritualistic, ritualistic, ritualistically trying to get a fresh start at the new millennium. Um, and then this is all in the liner notes, by the way, for the album. And then, uh, we meet our three main suspects, um, Leon, who is an outsider artist, um, but an outsider in general, he's, he, he may be an immigrant or he's definitely like, uh, biracial and, um, just feels outside of everyone else. He was the ex-boyfriend of baby grace. You then have Ramona A. Stone, an extreme fascist artist and, and, uh, like a dominatrix that, uh, her whole art was to, basically whip the angels out of out of the uh out of the faithful and then uh you have mr touchwick who was quiet owned an apartment and sold these art drugs with ramona a stone and these are the main suspects and the album gives us the adventure hey, to who done it hold on eric this this is from the liner notes of this album you got it you sure this isn't some unproduced screenplay by one of our old roommates <laughs> oh, it very well could be, especially when I get to the predominant fan theory about who done it, especially when I get to that part. Um, but yeah, that's the that is the setup. I kind of had to just say that because we'll be referencing some of those characters when we talk about lyrics. But um, that is the story. Now, they had a story. They got together in the studio to record some music for it. And when this started out. <laughs> It, um, they recorded a ton. First of all, they recorded apparently what David Bowie calls 30 hours of ad-libbing character voices. <laughs> right, funny. 
<laughs> which they never could end up digging through. Um, but the, the plan was they were there were so much good stuff in there with the characters and the story, according to Bowie, they were going to split this into three albums. That's why this one's called One Outside. Well, I was going to say whenever the couple of things here, uh, they had 30 hours and then these skits were the best they can come up with. That's interesting to me. Um, I never want to hear what the other ones were. Uh, and whenever a musical artist says something's going to be volume one, typically that never works out well unless volume two is already recorded. Um, like use your illusion one and two. There you go. Guns N' Roses did it right. Every, every band that did a, Greatest Hits Volume 1, that Volume 2 of Greatest Hits, probably never came out. Looking at you, Van Halen, and many others. And uh, our, our friend David Bowie here, yeah, uh, <laughs> king of getting distracted, didn't didn't follow through on this one. And no. uh, we, we got one chapter of Outside. I mean, anybody that knew him had to know, but there's no way Bowie's going to commit to a, a second one. <laughs> but yeah, the, the second one was going to be called Two, Contamination. And the third one was going to be called Bafflingly... Three, Africata. <laughs> so, whatever. That, that sounds about, actually, you know what? I mean, that, if we're going to go low heroes. Uh, that, that's, that's, yeah. Uh, lodger. Yeah, you're right. That's kind of, that's kind of the, the sound. <laughs> yeah. So that's the setup. So what they did is they got in the studio with the band. And um, the band was Bowie, Reeves, Gavrils, his longtime guitarist now since the Tin Machine days. Um, Mike Garson. And then drumming was Sterling Campbell, correct? And who do they have yes. on bass? Because Gail Ann Dorsey joined for the tour, but not for the recording. Oh, they had um, his boy yes, from it... uh, from Switzerland. Erdal Kizilkay. Thank you. Thank you. Kizilkay. Yeah, that was yes. the guy who produced his, uh, you know, Never Let Me Down. And that was his general, his, uh, his, when he ever was, he was in the Alps. That was his collaborator, his uh, collaborator. Is that a word? I don't think so. Um, and they got together and what they did is they did this huge, just jazz, freeform jazz jam. And the, the intention was not necessarily to release that. It was to figure out the sound that they wanted for the album. And they've never officially released that. You can find a hour and 20 minute YouTube clip. It's got three distinct movements in it. And I was fascinated by it only because I was so familiar with the album. And it's fun to hear little song ideas where, you, where they pop up here and there. I wouldn't recommend that for the casual listener at all. But it is the outside sound. It does have that band sound. It's completely underproduced. It doesn't sound amazing. But it is cool to hear him jamming out, hearing some crazy Garson riffing um, and Eno squelches and then Bowie either sc <laughs> scatting, doing his character voices or actually singing some crazy shit I never heard before. And only a few scraps of this ended up on the actual album. But for diehard fans, go out and look for the Leon sessions because it, it, I, I, I found it absolutely fascinating. And you can tell that's where they're like, OK, this is the palette we want to use for this album. And in addition to, I mean, the the people that you called out that are on those uh, outtakes, uh, the full band that ended up in the album, it was David Bowie on vocals, saxophone, guitar, and keyboards. Brian Eno, who was much more than a producer on this one, uh, synthesizers, treatments, and strategies. He was listed as doing strategies. 
uh, Reeves Gabrels, who we've just last episode learned how to pronounce his name on guitar. Uh, Erdal Kizaklay on the bass and keyboards. Mike Garson on the grand piano and what a grand presence he has on this record. Uh, Sterling Campbell on drums. Old friend of the show, Carlos Alomar on rhythm guitar. On yeah. The, I think at least at least two tracks, maybe more. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he's on a few here. Uh, Joey Barron does uh, drums as well. Yossi Fine, a new name to the list of players on bass. Tom Frisch, also uh, playing guitar on Strangers When We Meet. Kevin Armstrong, who plays additional guitar on Through These Architects' Eyes. And Brini, Lola, Josie, and Ruby Edwards doing the background vocals on The Heart's Filthy Lesson and I Am With Name. That's the that's everybody. Nice. Yeah, so they then they got back. They they kind of figured out the sound they were going for. And um <clears throat> at some point, Bowie did change from wanting it just to be all character stuff to intersplicing some actual like songs in there. Um, that wasn't the intent initially. And I think we can all, you know, as much as I enjoy the story to this and enjoy digging into that, <clears throat> this album would not be. Uh, engaging without those bangers and there are a few bangers on this album so um that was bowie's idea and he, he he chewed on it for a while chewed on those tapes for a while and said yeah we gotta these can be a narrative device but we need to we need to put some some actual songs in here um so they hit the studio again and they dusted off one or two old ideas and um like two old ideas and 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 put a bunch of new songs and actually no covers is this the first time there's never been a cover song on a Bowie album that we've just, I, I don't know. I feel like he's always got one in there, but not a, not a cover to be seen on this one. I don't think there's uh, on low. And no, you're, right. Any cover? you're right. You're right. There's not, a, there's not on low, but during this era, there definitely seemed to be a cover on every album. Yeah. For like 10 years straight. Yep. Yep. And, uh, they got in there and, uh, yeah, they banged it out and, this thing uh, dropped in 1995 uh, on September 25th, 1995. Um, so uh, do you guys have any uh, personal or first of all, do you have any other stories that I missed about the production of this album before we get into the songs and talk about our own history of it? No, that was pretty, pretty no, no, thorough. <laughs> Neither do I. I just, uh, it definitely seemed like David Bowie, uh, just after years of trying to um, appeal to the masses or something, definitely just said, you know, it, it seems like the masses right now are kind of into things that are a bit darker, a bit more electronic. I think I could, I could, I could please my artistic side and also maybe, maybe tap into what's going on here. And I, I think it's a, the closest he came to uh, getting getting back in the good graces of his fans and I don't know uh, pop culture in a while. Yeah, and the album didn't set the chart charts on fire, but I definitely think this was a kind of a, a, a getting some kind of return to not respectability. That's not the word I'm looking for, but uh, you know, alternative press probably review alternative press probably uh, liked this album. While black tight wide noise, they probably didn't even give the time of day. Did you guys get um, any reviews for this one? 
I mean, from what I can uh, gather, it looks like uh, from the time that what it was released, it really was received kind of just as a so-so kind of album. Um, one of the things that David Bowie himself was pretty concerned with was the fact of the album length was one of his longest albums ever at uh, around 75 minutes. So some of the reviewers um, were a little put off by the skits, the segues, and um, felt that the album, the songwriting was a little bit too, uh, a little esoteric. I mean, it was certainly designed to push away the folks that were really just about Let's Dance and that sort of kind of pop sheen sound. But to Stephen's point, um, you know, dark music of the day was really rising up the charts with bands such as Nine Inch Nails um, around this time. Then you would also get Gravity Kills, Stabbing Westward, Prick had a little bit of a moment in the sun with his sure. animal Manson. song. Matt Manson, of course. Manson, of course, was even also like coming up. Smashing Pumpkins and, you know, other bands had a even if their music wasn't the same ilk their 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 image was there were there was definitely a darker <laughs> you know eyeliner uh eyeliner uh styling going on yeah but for the most part most uh critics were really ra- like rating it around a three out of five in that range uh, and it wasn't until after he had passed away uh music blog site consequence of sound actually ranked this album number seven on its list of David Bowie studio albums um, above Blackstar and Station to Station, stating that the album succeeded because Bowie brought in completely, bought in completely to its concept and its strangeness. Um, So he committed to seeing this through and you have to kind of tip your hat to the commitment and trying to pull out a narrative all in all, like Bowie really doesn't dabble in concept albums outside of Ziggy Stardust. Um, and this one is straight up narrative. You could kind of argue that maybe Diamond Dogs kind of falls in that as well. But then the kind of the back half of that album, as we discussed, tends to kind of fall apart a little bit in terms of like discovering a narrative. Because it really <laughs> was like, two albums like two smashed songs. together. There's two songs on Diamond Dogs that have a narrative. And then there's the 1984 songs. And then there's a spattering of stuff in the middle. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. yeah. This, this was, this was, if he was ever going to do a concept album, um, you know, I guess beyond Ziggy Stardust, it was this and, uh, and, you know, two mixed results, but like you said, or like the reviewer said, either way, the commitment to it created a, a kind of atmosphere for this album that I think ultimately helps, helps it. And, 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 uh, you know, it, it it sucks you into the world. Um, did you guys? Well, one, oh, sorry. Go on. Before idea, before you move on from this, though, I do. You know, to to the to the reviews at the time and how it sounds now. I definitely think, and this happened to me with this album. I think this album was a victim of an unfairly a victim of just the idea that Bowie lost it in the nineties. I think that if people were really focused on what he was doing and uh, you know, if this might have came out in like the late zeros with a little bit, little bit more polished production, I think it would be uh, thought of 
more fondly by people that are not uh, within the Bowie uh, super fan circle. I think it's a really, uh, I, I, myself included, I always kind of just wrote this off as like the album before Earthling that had a bunch of uh, skits. And uh, as we're going to learn, I was completely wrong. And I, I think there's a lot of good songs on here that if it wasn't sandwiched in between Black Tie, White Noise slash Buddha of Suburbia and whatever went on in the late 90s, it would have been uh, probably looked at with a more critical and fair eye. I, I think it would just, it, it definitely, I think it's a lot better than uh, the reputation Bowie had at the time. Uh, let's it, uh, let, let the critics, uh, you know, actually dig into it the way they should have. Yeah. Am I making sense? Yeah, I know. It actually makes a whole lot of sense. And if anything, um, I mean, we can talk more in detail about the outside tour later, but this is obviously famously, you know, the three of us, this is where, um, our good esteemed colleague and friend went and saw David Bowie and Nine Inch Nails on this tour. And it really was just kind of your straight up like concert. But Eric, I'm going to ask you, do you wish at the time because of this album having such a strong theatrical narrative, would you have preferred that he bought, brought like a stage show or are you um, glad that you, what you saw? I, I'm glad with what I saw um, because he did have stuff on the stage. He had like mannequins and weird shit out on the stage, but it wasn't like there was, it was, there was like a handful of songs from this album and then some really weird cuts from the rest of his career that at the time I didn't, I didn't know it's, I didn't know night flights. <laughs> um, you know, I, and, and I probably didn't know teenage, teenage wildlife. Um, there was, there was some weird, weird shit that he played. So by based on those songs, a stage, a theatrical thing wouldn't have made any sense. Um, and I think he probably was burned out after glass spider, you know, a decade earlier, um, doing something like that. So, um, uh, and he, it, it all had like a dark pastiche to it. It, 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 it kind of worked following nine inch nails. And I think my mind was so blown watching Nine Inch Nails see him play together. And then I, I was just happy to enjoy, to enjoy uh, whatever Bowie had had for me that night. Um, you guys had mentioned that Earthling was the first like Bowie album that you had bought. You'd had exposure, but it was the first one that you had kind of, or at least Mark, the first one you had bought. And then you followed him since then. Does that mean this one was not really on your, on your radar when it came out? I mean, it was, uh, I had heard Hart's filthy lesson. Um, I think the first time I heard that was when I saw um, seven, because I believe that song is in the credits at the very end of the film. Yeah. When the credits um, go in reverse, they creep up in reverse at the, yeah, or they creep down in reverse. Yeah. At the end. It's yeah. something like that. Um, so I was aware of it. Um, and I, I didn't come uh, purchasing it until later. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Earthling for the obvious reasons, because of I'm Afraid of Americans. But this one was certainly up there as the one that, oh, I should check that one out as well, because that's the one he toured when he toured with Nine Inch Nails. Um, but when I first heard it, my first impression was there's some good stuff, but I tend to drift off towards the back half of the album because it was always so fucking long. I thought yeah. it's you an know, undertaking. For sure. Yeah, I mean, when you're just kind of driving around with it in your CD player, because at that time, didn't really have an iPod or anything like that, and certainly not an iPhone. Um, it was just like, I probably heard the first maybe six tracks very frequently, and then I would go to put something else in. 
Uh, Steve, did you was this one on your radar when it dropped? It's on my radar, but uh, the, the way I came to David Bowie was like uh, through through the 1970s stuff, making me interested because of uh, you know uh, like hearing this guy was touring with Nine Inch Nails and him being in the Lost Highway soundtrack made me go explore other albums. Right. But I didn't go buy outside first. And then, uh, yeah, Mark had Earthling. And then I, I bought hours in 1999. Um, that probably would have been the first new Bowie album I bought when it came out. All right. Uh, <laughs> I had exposure to this album. I did, I did own it at a certain time around then. I always have liked uh, hollow space boy to the point where I don't know if you guys remember this, but the things you do when you have your own place, when you're young and weird, uh, I wrote the mark above our door in the Roseville uh, duplex. Uh, moon dust will cover you. Oh yeah, <laughs> over I, our door. I do remember leave that. the house. Oh yeah. And looking back, I'm like, of all, <laughs> it's from a great song, but of all the, uh, all the, you know, that sounds like some uh, Elf Quest nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, no, uh, but I, I didn't. I did not. Uh, this album seems right up my alley, but it just, uh, all the all the pieces should have been in play from the influence of the sounds of the time. Nine Inch Nails esque to touring with Nine Inch Nails to promote this album to uh, being in the movie like seven. Yeah. Uh, a, a lot of, I just, for whatever reason, I got into a whole bunch of other Bowie things, but this album I did not give wow. the time of day to until later. I bought, I'd say, I mean, I've owned it for decades now, but uh, I probably listened to it all the way through five times tops until the podcast. So. And uh, yeah, did I, I did not mind becoming more familiar with it. Well, I, 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 and I'll just be upfront. I, I, if there's one that I have like a nostalgia bias for, it's this one because this is the one that got me, got me into Bowie. Um, obviously, I went to the tour, but even before that, I remember that we've talked about it before, but there was a special 120 minutes of nothing, and it was the nothing spectacle on MTV. Um, obviously the main feature was the nine inch nails, but they had videos from all the nothing bands and they had Bowie on there with Trent being interviewed and they were talking about their tour coming up and, um, and then they premiered hearts filthy lesson during that block. And I thought that was awesome. And obviously I had known Bowie from having a history and knowing labyrinth, but not much past that. So I was excited. And then, um, when the tickets went on sale, uh, Begged my dad to go. He had a business trip in Phoenix that same weekend. So he said he'd take us and then he'd go to his, his business conference the next day. And so he was going to go to the show too. And so to get ready for it, he bought the Bowie. He bought outside. He's like, all right, I want to hear what Bowie's going to play. He bought outside. And I don't know. It just captured my pre my adolescent imagination. Even all the silly shit on that album captured it. And I, and I, and like all these songs, like I, I could, I could karaoke Hearts Filthy Lesson and and not miss a beat, and I'd probably look like you know pretty awful doing it. But <laughs> I, I I know these songs is what I'm saying, and um, and uh, special album, special album to me for sure. So, uh, so I definitely had uh, I have that that history with it. So I was very very excited, and every time we rolled the dice up until now, I was like, oh, it's gonna be outside. Can't wait to talk about it. So there we go. 
always warms my heart on how special you think this album is. I think it's great. <laughs> and Eric, you're not alone. Um, we're going to do it later. Uh, after we talk about the album, I put out a little, a little missive today to our social networks. And uh, it seems that there's quite a few people that do like this album. And also serendipitously today, um, the guy that runs Pushing Ahead the Dame, his Twitter account is uh, Bowie Songs, I believe. And he did like a, a listening party, if you will, for the record on Twitter. And tons of people were responding to it. You know, Mike Garson comes out of nowhere and just starts reminiscing about recording this record all day today. So this album is uh, in the, it's a, uh, it's in the hearts of the people that made it. And also those that were there at the time until today. And that's why I think if it was not released in the middle of the, the stigmatized Bowie nineties, it probably would have a better reputation. It deserves one. I think. Hello and welcome to the auditions for the many characters in the segues of David Bowie's new album outside. I'm co-writer, co-producer Brian Eno. Happy to be here. Oh, we've got something in store. Uh, we don't know if we wanna, how we want to play this, but we wanted to try some actors in the roles of these characters. <clears throat> so, first up, auditioning for the lead, Detective Nathaniel Adler. I have Anthony Vincente? Come on up. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. All right, here we go. It was New Year's Eve. I was traveling the streets looking for the murderer of Baby Grace. Baby Grace Blue, that was her name, and I can tell you she was, her name was Blue just like my attitude. See, I got dumped recently and, uh... <clears throat> hold on, hold on, hold on right there, hold on right there. <sighs> this is absolutely preposterous, but I would not put this below you. <laughs> what are you talking, what are you... Tony, who are you trying are you, to fool? Tony, <laughs> Anthony Vicente, ah, uh, you got me. <laughs> uh, let me just take this fake mask. Yes. I take this uh, fake mustache off. I got you, Brian. I got you, Eno. You motherfucker. <laughs> you didn't even know it was me. <laughs> yes, Tony. You wore that same exact outfit when you were trying to get into Studio Fifty Four after they threw you out that night when uh, you and Mick Jagger had some of that Moon Age daydream. It was. What? Hey, we can we can do it again. The, the whole Berlin gang's back together, right? What is this anyways? Characters on an album? Crazy! I don't think you really understand what we're trying to do here. The Berlin trilogy, that was that was 20-something years ago. And uh, it's almost 1999. I and Brian, we're here looking towards 1999. You gotta shame me on top of it? <laughs> I... Yeah, you kicked me out of your wedding right as you two start playing music together. In the, the I could hear you from outside. You guys were spinning the wheels of steel. I wish I was in there. And this is what you're going to do? You're going to do a, a, some kind of concept play? It is a concept play album. It is the concept play album. It's a hyper-disco-sexual-panthemic psychoblast thing. And, um, well, I mean, on it, you've got me, David Bowie. You've got uh, Brian Eno over there, another genius. You know, we've worked uh, with Brian together. And Tony, there's only so much room for like this. 
And I don't know if you've forgotten, but standing over there is Reeves Gabriels or Gabriels. And Reeves, Tony, he's on another level. And that level that Reeves is on, I apologize. You are not there. All right, fine. You got me. I'm leaving. I'm out. I'm out. Okay? But, uh, you know, what's this, what, what's, what's it even about? Usually you write songs about things. What are you, what are you just talking about a detective the whole time? Or is there there's something more to this album? Or you're going to love it, even though I'm not going to allow you anywhere near it. You have albums that I am gonna, I'm going to finish all three of them. Because nothing distracts me when I put my mind to something. Uh-huh. Yeah. You call, you call me when you're ready for uh, pinups too, buddy. Okay? Because <laughs> you've been talking about that a long time. All right? <laughs> Reeves. And I don't think David needs you next time he wants to make some kind of covers album. No, hey, hey, keep me in mind, you know, next time you want to return to, to something great. Okay? If you get rid of the skits, at least. <laughs> Disagree. I, I would say the skits serve their purpose. Um, uh, but it, I don't know. And this is kind of where I'm more interested in hearing uh, Eric discuss and analyze this album. Because towards the end there, I'm like, what happens? I, is that it? Uh, so we'll talk <laughs> about it. Oh, boy. I hope I don't disappoint you, Mark. I, uh that that there there's definitely a point where even Bowie's attention span couldn't wrap this 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 narrative up with a nice little bow, but I'll do my best. Yeah. Well, well let's think, uh, let's get let's, into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So track one is uh, the introduction to this album. It's Leon takes us outside. Well, for some reason, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six writers on this track. <laughs> yes, <laughs> gonna... because this is one of the only times you hear a glimpse of what they were doing on that that um, three movement jazz out jam fest. This is one of the uh, uh, this is from the original tapes from that night. Um, that's why they credit to six writers, because they were all they were all just just free, uh, free wheeling in the studio. Um. This is obviously from the perspective of Leon. Leon is the um, the kind of outsider artist that gets pulled into this thing. He's one of the the head um, suspects because he had just broken up with uh, uh, Baby Grace before her murder, and he's supposed to be based on Tricky um, as far as in looks. If you see him in the album artwork and um, just kind of the perspective. The, but what he's saying in this doesn't make any sense. He's just listing off dates. There are holidays for Martin Luther King Day and then a day, a, a British holiday. They don't, and there's no significance that I can tell to it uh, whatsoever. It's a very short song. It's like, what, 20 seconds long? And um, there you go. The only note that I would have to say, it just sounds like the beginning of Blade Runner. Um, whether it be the video game that was... 800 discs or the movie it just it, i i get the sense of someone kind of zooming through the uh like this dystopian metropolis i don't know yeah yeah no for sure and i think um 
This one's less, I mean, this one's effective as far as the music in the background. Um, the narration ends up, I mean, in my, after doing a deep dive, I think, and unlike Steve, I think it, it helps, it helps create the atmosphere of this album, even if, and luckily they're all pretty short. So it doesn't, you know, you know, you can skip them or you're going to be done in a minute for the most part, uh, during all these segues. So, um, Anyways, that's all I got to say about that one. But yeah, I like the Blade Runner connection. Um, clearly, Bo Bowie was influenced by Blade Runner and like Twin Peaks um, in all of his writing going on here. So, back two. So we we go outside. Leon takes us outside to outside. Now, Eric, who each of these songs is sung from a different perspective, correct? Yes. So the first track is Leon. Yes. Who sings outside? Now, now the, the impression I get of outside is it's kind of like, you know, Diamond Dogs opens up with the uh, the great. Uh, well, actually, track two of Diamond Dogs. It, it's kind of like a, uh, you know, here's the land of Diamond Dogs and this is what's going to happen. I kind of get that impression here. This is kind of like a stage setting. If this was a musical, you'd be introduced to all the characters in the world. You got it. You got it. Um, it's not, you're not, you're not getting specific characters because the song wasn't written for this. This was a Tin Machine song, believe it or not, never recorded but you can find a live version of it out there. It is a noodle mess. I mean, it may just be the sound recording. I tried to listen to it and I was like, ah, I had to like skip until about halfway through before something kind of reminded me of this song. But the, the Tim Machine version is, 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 is not good. Did you guys listen to that? Just, just, just for, no. just for, I know Mark, you've scrubbed Tin Machine from your memory. <laughs> so <laughs> Tin Machine was Bowie's band and from 89 to 93. <laughs> but I thought that was just a, a void where Bowie right. went and became a carpenter or something. Eternal sunshine of the Tin Machine mind. That's what Mark said done to himself. Uh, it's not good. Um, but that's why Kevin Armstrong is credited as a writer because they did write this together and in the Tin Machine days. Um, before they uh, gave him the boot from the band. But luckily, they brought they brought him back to play a little bit later on this album. Um, this is setting the stage, but it's not introducing characters. Um, it's kind of a contradicting song. Um, you have the... It's singing about the anxiety, uh, about anxiety, but then about this, like... Um, this, the music is outside. So like this, this kind of pulse of, of, of art and progress is happening outside of the norm. You have to travel past it. And that's, that's what the song was always meant to be about in the narrative of the story. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about people in the streets, this anxiety about it's all oh, the story takes place on new year's Eve, 1999, this, this, this millennium thing. And, um, you have the, the violence of these like people that want to do a ritual on new year's Eve. And then just the people that are inspired and want a fresh start and this and um, all this kind of energy is going into the song. You know, it's not tomorrow, yesterday, it's happening 
It's happening now. Um, the crazed in the hot zone, which makes you just think of like this mad people packed into this downtown area. Um, the fisting of life to the music outside. Uh, uh, that's what the song's about. And it just takes some creative mental Tetris to fold it into the story, but it's sung from a narrator's perspective. So you got that right, Steve. Yeah, I dig this track. I think it, it announces uh, Eno's involvement pretty well. Uh, right off the bat, you kind of have those, uh, they're almost slow era uh, synths kind of going on, kind of sound Egyptianish, Egyptian y, if that's a word. Yeah. Um, and I, I like the, uh, it kind of settles into a groove and then the synths turn into like a, a waterfall effect kind of synthesizer. Um, good synth work in this track. I I think it really sets the stage for the sound of the album well, even if it was a reworked Tin Machine song, which I didn't even bother listening to, and I I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it. Uh, I think I think it's a great opening song. It sets the stage well for the the story, and also the uh, the sound of the album. And I think that uh, Bowie's uh, vocalization for the music is outside is, is, is really done nicely. Yeah. He's, um, I mean, he is this song, it. this song live, uh, apparently a lot when they played this live, sometimes Gail and Dorsey would, would take the lead vocals, which I need to look up and check out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just a big epic, epic song. And when he says, you know, the fisting of life to the music outside, like I haven't heard Bowie get that, sing that passionately in a long in a long time and um reeves is like is chill on this on this song i mean I, you know what i mean like he's he uh it's like he's actually playing quarter notes like that that part where he's just playing along with the vocals and not squiggling over it it's um it's nice and that's kind of a theme of this album reeves reeves uh found a way to fit in and it's probably thanks to eno's uh <laughs> you know strict hand in the studio um but uh yeah the guitar work is nice it complements everything nice and you're right the the textures that Eno brought is is fantastic mark what do you think so um i guess the first song that properly uh starts this album does start out with the bang there's no doubt that it's really setting the scene for how this uh, rest of the album is going to go um you can absolutely hear Eno's influence pretty pretty throughout um, the muted guitar work is very interesting. Um, it's not really front and center. It's just really providing uh, just texture. Yeah. I don't really know how else to really uh, describe it. The drum section um, really is uh, something right out of a, like a Cirque du Soleil stage performance. I've only been to one, but it's just very bombastic and very theatrical uh, really kind of driving the song forward. Bowie's vocal work um, starts out, you know, kind of more subdued and then really gives it some gusto kind of towards the, uh, the middle and towards the end. Um, yeah, no, this is a, it's a good track. I mean, it, uh, it really signals that we're in for something uh, a lot different and something um, more creative than what his current output for the time was really offering. And uh, yeah just kind of buckle your seatbelts because you're, you're going to be in for something that's different, but modern at the same time. That brings us to the uh, first uh, banger of the album. 
Oh, that, that, that first song is a banger, but as far as like a, a hit, one of the radio hits, we have Hearts Filthy Lesson. There's always a diamond friendly Sitting in the live hotel The heart's filthy lessons With her hundred miles to hell Uh, Eric, I have a question for you. Yes. Who's been wearing Miranda's clothes? Patty? Patty? Uh, yes, that's a good question. It's a good question. This uh, this song is sung from Nathan Adler, the, the, the detective, the art detective perspective. He's talking to Patty, his, apparently, um, Internet Slews have decided that that's his partner in the case. Patty is his partner and they're investigating this together. And, um, as we learn in the backstory, Nathan has a history with Ramona a stone, the kind of fascist dominatrix artist. And she's one of the primary suspects. And he feels he's all, he's always, uh, been kind of entranced by her dedication to her art, even though she wants to conquer people with it. And because she's a suspect, he feels himself kind of losing himself in the case here. And he's asking for Patty's Patty, will you carry me? I think I've lost my way. I'm already five years older. I'm already in my grave. Um, so it's it's stream of consciousness, uh, kind of like him and Patty on the case and him worrying about, you know, he's already been corrupted. He doesn't think he can do the job. Um, that's what it's about. But what do you guys think about the the music on this bad boy? I mean, it's right out of the uh, kind of the template of um, rock meeting electronic music uh, for the time. And you can absolutely hear the influence of Nine Inch Nails, which is kind of interesting because Nine Inch Nails sampled nightclubbing off of Closer. And then it's just all it's like a Mobius strip happening here. Um, Certainly, if you look at the. Uh, video for this song it it is absolutely you know samuel bear trying to do his best mark romantic in how everything looks kind of dingy filthy dusty and you know bowie's really leaning into right. that look i mean the guitar work is you know fresh out it, it doesn't have that bionic guitar swoosh that uh trent does for the 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 tone and texture i, I feel it's a little bit closer to like a gravity kills uh, sound. The song, though, is is fantastic. Uh, it's a lot of fun to listen to. Mike Garson. Um, is the MVP, if you ask me, on here, uh, especially towards oh, the yeah. end. Um, the little mouse chase that happens on that keys is pretty pretty fun. 
Um, and then you've got the the bass like really really amped up in the mix, uh, where oh, yeah, it's just popping. It's popping. So I mean, I don't know if that's well, that's probably real bass by Earl Kizilke, um, and I'm sure that uh, and Gail Andorsi is also in the video, and I think this is also the performance that they did when they went on the late show as well. Um, but with David Letterman, but anyways, yeah, song's great. It's fantastic. It's super catchy. It's just a really well-structured song. <laughs> Did you guys watch that video of, uh, on the Letterman show? I didn't. I, I read about it though. And I heard that it was just kind of like, the fuck was that? You know, but, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bowie, Bowie was, uh, it looks like a maniac on that. He's like just in all leather eyeliner, you know, bleach spiky hair and he's just like uh i mean he's obviously you know he was clean at this point but he was lo- he was he was singing and performing like a like a like a crack addict looking for his next hit it was it's <laughs> it's uh it's something yeah and at the end like uh Dave, david letterman makes some 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 like uh crack he was unimpressed by the song he was <laughs> you could tell he was unimpressed by the song i thought it was a good performance though mike garson's killing it on stage on that no, I I dig this track. Um, that video was Sam Bayer, the guy just smells like Teen Spirit, right? Yeah, that sounds same, right. Same director. Yeah, that sounds right. He really, yeah, he really he nailed the uh, sepia toned yellow, dirty '90s videos quite well. Um, I think it's a great song. I I find it interesting that the subject matter of this album and this song in particular kind of fits the movie Seven so well. Um interesting that they 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 chose it for the credits of that movie that definitely seems almost like it could be written for seven even though it wasn't it's just a uh like a really slinky and dirty track and it what i like about it is that it pulls that off without seeming like they're trying too hard to do it they man they managed to uh, get get the point across be a dirty grimy single but it doesn't sound like old man bowie's trying to go dark it uh it it seems authentic, and uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of I mean, even the line "The Heart's Filthy Lesson." That's a great that's a great ly- lyric. That's a great title for a song, and that uh, that that uh, oh Ramona, uh, I love that delivery. Uh, it's just a it's a strange strange track for a single, and I, I think it uh, it works out. It's good. Yeah, I I like that. You're right. The lyric that his his vocal performance is something. He knows exactly what he wants to do on the song. It's a very focused Bowie. Um, you know, you it, you can follow what he's doing from point A to point B. Um, it's awesome. I mean, it's in and that's that's a theme on this album. Like he is top notch in vocal form on this album. Um, and I like the best songs on this album work because they don't just tell the story. They there is some some just universal truths in there. And this, you know, this song can be read uh, universally as just, you know, when you're in a romance that, you know, is doomed from the get go, but you're still going to do it. And, you know, it, you know, it's going to be doomed. Um, but, uh, you know, but then but then digging a little deeper, it's the definitely the um, the ethos of our of our main character and his struggle and setting that up. Um, but yeah, everything you guys said about the music is spot on. I mean, this one gets stuck in my head all the time since 1995. I've never, never forgotten about this song. Um, there are, 
uh, an atrocious amount of remixes for this. Uh, Tony Maserati, who did a lot of the Black Tie White Noise remixes, did some just forgettable ones like the rubber mix, a simple text mix, which is cool if you want to hear the drums and the bass kind of more set aside, um, and a filthy mix, but they're all pretty forgettable. The really the one we all got out of our beds for this morning is the, the Nine Inch Nails remix, the alternative mix. lesson i bought the single when it came out because i saw i was like oh shit Reznor's on here and um sometimes i can't tell if i like that better than the original because uh it's just this song it still has the big bass it still has the samples but then it has those huge Reznor guitars and drums um and uh you guys like the remix for this this one the alt mix by trent Reznor, i do um i've yeah. dabbled a little bit into the other remixes found on the expanded edition. I didn't really find much that kept my interest, but uh, I will right. have to say the exactly. alt mix is, is very good. I would still probably prefer if you're looking at David Bowie and Trent Reznor remixes, the I'm afraid of Americans remix does just run laps um, around pretty much a lot of remixes that David Bowie ever did. Um, but this one is, is high up there. All right. Well, the next song we got. A small next? plot of land. Swings through the tunnels and claws his way. His small life so many are these really the days. So just um, just just tying it back into the story, this is sung from the perspective of the townspeople of Oxford Town. Um, Oxford Town is where the body was found. Um, it's Oxford, New Jersey. So the idea is in this crazy future of 1999, they've renamed American towns after British places. Anyways, um, this song is all about them. These are like you know these are your. The, the, the chorus of Oxford Town. There are people gossiping about who do they think the killer is. Poor soul, poor, poor soul spit upon. Poor soul. He never knew what hit him. Um, poor dunce. So they're talking about this guy must be like a, a kind of like a, like a, you know, emotionally disturbed halfwit is what they, is what they believe, you know, who they believe the killer is. Um, and uh, they're just gossiping. They're scared. Um, but that's that's what this song is um, is all about. Um, and uh, this one's yeah, this one's interesting. It's uh, it's pretty airy, atmospheric. Um, it's got uh, it's got Carlos Alomar on this song, um, and it kind of starts all over the place. And at some point, it kind of uh, things kind of click in together a little bit more. Uh, Gabriel's does a little bit of a solo on this. Um, 
and Bowie kind of goes into some chants that remind me of um, Subterraneans and some of his low low chanting, which um, I like. I think this is a pleasant, pleasant sounding song. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that a small plot of land, um, it uh, starts out as if we we're going into like the local jazz lounge. Um, you got Garson already giving the keys a little tickle. Um, the Sterling Campbell, I, th- I believe that's him drumming. Um, even though it lacks a traditional structure, and I know that when we discussed Aladdin Sane, um, I may have to go back and, I guess, retroactively comment on that, because I actually do enjoy this kind of like loose jazz number here. Um, I, I, I don't know what's holding it together, um, but, I mean, it's the, the poor soul... Uh, just, I don't know what it is. Uh, I When I listened to this, I guess my mind was a little bit more open. And it was fitting into kind of the uh, the whole tone of the record. Um, so, I don't know. I, I actually do enjoy this one. I think it's a, it's a strong track, despite it not really falling into the, the traditional structure that I tend to get a little bit more uh, attracted to. Yeah, I didn't remember this one from my days of loving the album as much, but after listening to Low, I don't know, I feel a connection to Low on this song, and I think that made me appreciate a lot more um, some of his chanting vocals. Steve, what do you think about Small Plot of Land? Uh, I mean, it kind of, it's funny that you guys are kind of forgiving of it because I was the one that liked Aladdin Sane more than both of you did. And for me, I'm kind of like, all right, that's enough on this album. I, uh, I kind of, I find myself checking my watch. Um, it's kind of, you know, this is kind of like, you know, Bowie's version. Of What's he building in there or something? I'm just like, all right, I get it. Pretty, pretty cute. But, uh, do I really need, you know, six minutes of this? So, um, yeah, just, uh, not a highlight just, of the album. It never gotcha. seems to drag, though, for me. Uh, I know that uh, there is tendencies to where Bowie definitely can uh, use an editor. But on this one, I, I didn't mind the little free jazz because I think there was more than enough to keep me interested. And again, I think Mike Garson should be awarded the MVP for this whole record of just how much he brought to it, to be honest with you. I mean... There's not a single record so far that we've talked about with Reeves Gabrels where he's been like the sideman. It's always like he's just in the background providing uh, the guitar work when necessary, but he's never really at the forefront. I mean, when we talked about Earthling, and then certainly, right. oh yeah, he's never off- he's never offensive. Yeah, he's just a, never. He's just kind <laughs> of like a non-factor. He's just kind of showing up. And yeah. in the past, where it's always Bowie and the the guitar player that's like the kind of the Keith and Mick kind of dynamic. Uh, he just doesn't yeah. fill that role at all. And uh, it's just very piano driven is kind of what I'm trying to say. And I guess maybe that makes me an asshole, but maybe that's why I think this is my favorite Reeves Reeves work on this album because it's so natural. It just fits. It fits the, the song so well. It's not, it's not grasping for a spotlight. Um, and uh, even his solo on this is fine. It's absolutely fine. 
this for the Basquiat soundtrack. I tried to watch that movie actually before we recorded. I've never seen it. And based on the cast alone, it looks amazing. Did you guys watch that movie? A long time ago. I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Jeffrey Wright is fantastic. Yeah. Bowie, fan of him. Yeah. 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 Bowie's Andy Warhol and it's got like, yeah, it's got a, a hell of a cast. Never seen it. Um, but uh, they do a, uh, the remix I have heard and it's, it's just his voice synth and piano for a while. And then the band kind of clicks in towards the end. Um, and um, I mean, it's fine. The the album version's uh, much more engaging, in my opinion. So, <clears throat> well, speaking of engaging, Eric, let's go to our first skit. <laughs> Baby Grace, a horrid cassette. Very too, bit too fast, like a brain patch. And uh, they won't let me see anybody if, if I want to. Sometimes, and I ask. I can still hear some pop, popular music. Uh, what's this all, all right, about? We, we can get past this, but it's funny. Bowie says this is his favorite of the segues. He just, he felt his performance of Baby Grace was so heart-wrenching. Because obviously she's the Laura Palmer. She's she's doomed to be murdered. But he does it all in a chipmunk voice. <laughs> the idea of this is it's a cassette tape. Maybe Detective Nathaniel Adler found it and was listening to it. Maybe it's just out there. Maybe he never found it, but... You hear, uh, you hear Baby Grace talking about how Ramona got her hooked on these art drugs. She's working with these people, but now she's become a prisoner. She's the subject of this art piece, and she can't leave the house. She can't talk to anyone. Um, um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely tragic. You're hearing the last kind of thoughts of somebody who's who's about to be 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 murdered for art. Um, and uh, the background, the background music is unless I'm forgetting anything forgettable, it's like ambient stuff. Um, short, like I said, these are so short; they get, they get they get you right on. They get you amped for the next track, as you should be. Yes, and that next track is uh, "Hollow Space Boy." Oh, I'm sorry, Mark. Did you have anything you wanted to uh, add <laughs> no, to the segue? No, discussion? I mean, I think that Eric covered it really well. Um, I mean, the only thing that uh, yes. You know, it just all it's meant to do is just propel the the storyline. You know, it's the whole Laura Palmer thing. But yeah, that's it. Yes. And if it wasn't there, it wouldn't be missed. But uh, Hello Space Boy, if it wasn't here, it would be missed. Written by uh, David Bowie and Brian Eno. Hello Space Boy. Here's a clip. Ah, yes. Hello, Space Boy. Why is it hollow and not just hello? Who knows? But that's part of the charm of this song. 
I have I've adored this song for for decades now. Even when I wasn't very familiar with this record, this track always jumped out at me. Uh, I it's just it's one of Bowie's hardest songs. It it definitely it, it it's one of his most metallic songs. Uh, it could lend itself to being a metal song. It's just so driving and grinding and just got that powerful riff and uh, some metal songs have you, or some metal bands have even covered it such as a behemoth one of my favorite bands and i do not suggest you look up that cover that mark told me about it's not good but uh don't let that shade your opinion of that band we'll talk about them in season three when we go through all of their albums even their hard to find early 1990s only on a cassette tape black metal work Mark is really looking forward to season three. But Hollow Space Boy is such an awesome song. I think it's just a highlight of Bowie's whole discography. And I think they took what they, you know, they served, they, 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 they surveyed the land. They said, okay, Nine Chanels is doing this over here. Maybe this band Fear Factory is doing that over there. Let's do our own version of this. And I think they did their own version of an industrial metal 90s era song and they did it better than the rest. Mm -hmm. And they managed to do that and also tie it in to the David Bowie uh, legacy. I mean, this this could be a sequel from uh, Ashes to Ashes to, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, Ground Control Major Tom, Space Oddly, to Ashes to Ashes, to that ridiculous uh, but also awesome, uh, who's that guy that did that that (laughs) semi-sequel from Breaking Bad? (laughs) <laughs> Gail, uh, Gail, you know, yeah, yeah, you, Gail, yeah, Gail Bedeker's, uh, you know, he, he covered that, uh, that, that, that sequel yes. to a sequel uh, of the Ground Control Saga, and then you have this. Yep. It all ties together. It's awesome, and uh, live, they kept it in the live set because it's just, it's a great rock and live song. Um, they performed this one with Nine Inch Nails. I got a few that more things was, to say about was, it. That was the song they did with, with Nine Inch Nails. One of them. And as you okay. can imagine, it's a good match made in heaven on this particular track. Yeah, I got, I, I, I've gone on long enough. i got a couple other things to say, but uh, Mark, how do you feel um, This is definitely one of the highlights of the record. Uh, upon hearing it for the very first time, uh, I certainly gravitated towards it because it's just undeniably catchy just right from the jump. Um, I mean, my musical sensibilities at the time when I was hearing it, this is, you know, lack of a better phrase, music to my ears. This is exactly kind of the the style of music that I was really into, and it hasn't really changed um, throughout my life. It's very well mixed everything is right in its right place and it has just like a sense of danger even though there's times where it has kind of this rave up club kind of scene to it but uh you you definitely have this sense of just danger lurking in the shadows like a jeffrey dahmer hitting the club to hit his next victim kind of feel um it's good i i i thought it's uh one of those things when i was doing research um David Bowie was apparently really influenced by The Doors, thinking that one of his concepts was, what if The Doors made an industrial album? And um, I think it's pretty peculiar. And when he heard it back the first time when he listened to it, David Bowie said, fuck me, it's like Metal Doors. It's an extraordinary sound. Um, and 
in Earth 2, Jim Morrison was still alive and was able to actually make an industrial album, and I want to hear that. So David Bowie trying to bring that in from Earth 2, I, I appreciate, and I tip my hat. Um, and I, in terms of the, the Pet Shop Boys remix, um, I've only... I think I've heard maybe snippets. I'm not a huge Pet Shop Boys fan. Not to say that I think they're bad. It's just not a band that I really have spent a lot of time with, maybe besides hearing that song Go West or West End Girls. Um, I think that's pretty much my only um, exposure to them. Uh, But this song in particular, fantastic. It might be my favorite song off of the record because of how catchy. And just like you said, that moon dust will cover you. Uh, I just remember seeing that every time I would walk out the door. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so much to dig into here. Uh, I'll save that Pet Shop Boys uh, thing because it is important. It does tie back into what Steve said about it being part of the Major Tom trilogy. Um, They literally made it part of that trilogy. But... Um, the song itself, it's what you guys said. I mean, it's, it's perfect. It's, it is a, like for fans of industrial music, um, it's perfect, but it's, it transcends the genre. It's, 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 it's also better than that. And, 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 um, the, uh, the pushing ahead the dame article did make a connection to another band, which I thought was really good. And the one that I'm kind of exploring right now is the young gods. Um, they're a Swiss band and they just did, they always made their kind of four on the floor industrial, really hard hitting but also with rising action and this as, as you know, to trademarked term of our show. Um, uh, and this song has rising action uh, very well. A lot of like, electronic music, you know, it can, but you maybe don't notice it. And this one, you definitely notice it there. There are, there are a few climaxes in this song. Um, the, 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 um, they've done work with uh, Mike Patton. They have, yeah. The young guy. Yeah, yeah. Worth checking out. Uh, all their all their lyrics are 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 in are in like uh, French, but um, don't let that deter you. They're 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 fantastic. Um, so yeah, this song, like you guys said, I don't have anything to add to it. It's 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 a absolute classic. Um, lyrically, it is uh, been speculated that it is from the opinion so much so that it's on um, on the Wikipedia page. It says it right there. It's from the perspective of Patty who is the detective's partner and they're tracking down um, Leon, who's, who's the ex-boyfriend. And he, like I said, he's an outsider. He's based on tricky. He's supposed to be, he's also like some mix between tricky and Bowie, Bowie's kind of writing about himself, maybe how people perceived him as just kind of being out there and, and, you know, androgynous and, you know, uh, the confusing sexuality and, and all this kind of things. And, and I mean, in my head, what I picture when I, when I'm looking at the lyrics and it, they're searching for the suspect. They maybe find him at a club or something like that. And then they start interrogating him. And it's, uh, it's, um, just kind of one of those, one of those moments. Um, but it is definitely a out somebody's kind of perception of this character, Leon, who's you, as you get through the, the, the story, you find out that you, that's Bowie's definitely favorite character. Um, yeah, and it's good. Um, yeah, there, there, there are a few remixes, all done by the Pet Shop Boys, um, and they're all pretty similar. Um, just, just check out the twelve-inch remix. Bye bye, Tom. 
I've been talking about it since we started the season because <laughs> it is. It, I like the Pet Shop Boys. I don't like all their songs. They do definitely get into that cheesy house kind of like um, sound of music. But I love West End Girls. I love anytime Neil Tennant raps. Like that does it for me. Like I, <laughs> I love that stuff. Um, so uh, I do like like probably five of their songs quite a bit. And I do like their remix. It is a little cheesemo, like club. It goes on for almost eight minutes. Um, uh, it is not as good as the original because it's not industrial. It's definitely more of a kind of a clubby remix. Um, but I could definitely see it has movements to it. It has it has atmosphere. I could see this being a big hit in a club. Um, and then yeah, in the remix, uh, Neil Tennant raps and he says, "Ground to major, bye bye Tom. Place the circuit. Countdown's wrong." So he actually literally references major tom in his remix and i love hearing their voices together and bowie uh, apparently like gave him the you know, he'll let anybody remix his, his stuff and and but then i guess neil Tennant said hey uh i'm gonna reference major tom in this and bowie's like skirt <laughs> record scratching what <laughs> and so he actually was involved in the studio to to make sure it was done well and he he signed off on it and they played it live a few times together so um it's a it's one of the the rare bowie remixes sans Trent Reznor that I think stands out in his history as being worth a damn. Um, if only for the, the curious anecdotes that come from that. Um, but yeah, fantastic song. Yeah. There, there's some stuff in the song. I want to point out that just, uh, I kick my ass is, uh, I love the panning guitar blasts after the bye bye love. Uh, I think it's done really well. And, also, the, the second verse has these space sounds that kind of bounce around. Well, it just it pairs it down to just drum blue, uh, space bloops and just the, the like the, 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 the bam, 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 kick, kick, kick of the drum. And it just it works out so well. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, later on in the song, Garson has a, a small piano solo that kind of like you could actually close your eyes and visualize. These piano notes dancing around the rest of the song and propulsing through space forward. I don't oh. know. It's a, uh, it reminds me of the, you know, uh, the sword in the stone when there is the, the wizard and the kid in the water being chased by fish in their fish, oh, yeah. the way they dance around underwater. Okay. That's kind of how I, like I visualize these, these, these piano notes just dancing around and, and moving forward as fast as possible. Nice. Um, just an epic dominating song. I, I, I dig it. I love it. It's good. Mm -hmm. Everybody involved, A+. Mark, plus. in your research, I know you and I tend to overlap on sources sometimes. Did you see that, um, I guess, after Bowie split with uh, split with Reeves, G Gabriels, Reeves was a little bitter, and he um, he didn't get writing credit for this song, but apparently um, he did do some, like, ambient guitar work that, um, you know, if you pick the notes out, it did sped up. It definitely does does, like, sound like some of the major riffs in this song. And, um, and he was, and he was pissed. And, um, so, uh, there's a little bad blood, uh, as far as that goes. Um, he wrote some song called moon dust, which was, which was, uh, ambient that apparently was, was used for this. Um, but, but with no writing credit, but you know, it was a, it was a collaborative effort. I don't know if everybody that contributed a little riff here and there got a writing credit, but anyways, it's a sticking point for Reeves. I did read that. I did. Um, I can't remember if there was a third party that essentially like brought it all together, 
Um, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, Bowie sh- probably should have given him credit because, I mean, it was right there in the title of the ambient song. Uh, so, yeah. Right. Right. But that's that song. Uh, shall we move on and check into the motel? Let's do it. There is no hell. There is no shame. There is no hell. All right. Well, um, story-wise, this song is uh, from the perspective of Leon. He, um, you know, he's just been approached by a police or you know, an investigator. He's hiding out in a motel, waiting for whatever happens next. He's uh, t- thinking about his razor sharp, sharp crap shoot affair. He's t- thinking about his, his broken romance with uh, the now deceased Baby Grace. It's a pretty miserable song. Um, there, uh, as far as like uh, the lyrics, you know, it's 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 pretty hopeless. Um, and uh, you know, there's no more of me exploding you, re-exposing you, like everybody do, re-exploding you. Um, the the whole the, her death and the art is hanging over his head. He's probably feeling guilty. Um, that's that's pretty much what it's about. Um, this one you can definitely hear coming from the Leon sessions if you ever listen to that. Um, I think the music is a pretty good example of what's on there. Um, and apparently, it's heavily indebted to um, Scott Walker, who we've brought up before as being a huge influence to Bowie, especially in the '90s. Um, he had an album that dropped uh, just the year before that was a big, um, a bit. What was that one called? Tilt. Uh, Tilt, which was a big, uh, a big influencer on on Mr. Bowie. Um, what do you guys think about the song? So, it kind of reminds me, like, kind of how it slowly starts, um, almost like something that you would hear on one of the last three Pink Floyd records. Very ambient, very just kind of easing you in into the song just an a soundscape if you will and you got the twinkling piano from mark mike garson again uh you got a longing bass line responding back to it uh the choruses bring in the synth drums and the closing outro brings in real drums and some great vocals um so how it's structured and layered and how it's kind of a slow build you know, again, I'm okay with it. I, I I know that it takes a while to to kind of get there, but the melody is strong, and the composition is pretty sol- solid. So yeah, I'm okay with it. Yeah, I would I would definitely lump this into that whole like small plot of land. Um, it's a story song, but it uh, it definitely fits that um, outside. Uh, palette they were building um, that kind of jazzy palette uh, Steve what do you think it's alright it's a it's a it's a world builder it's it's a soundscape it uh, again takes about seven minutes to do whatever it wants to do and we'll go on to the next song can I ask though really quick Steve um, I, when he's done kind of similar 
just like freeform stuff on other albums before. Like I'm thinking of, you know, say like the second half of Low with a lot of ambient. You you seem to be more receptive to that. Is it because these are interspersed and it takes away from the momentum when you like put them all on a side B? It, it's kind of is that easier for you to digest? No, good question though. Uh, one a positive of the song I do want to bring up. I like the bass work in this song. It has a good tone to it. To answer your question, Eric, it's because these types of songs on top of the skits and the fact that they're so long is why I just, I mean, I'm not a guy that hates long things, but when I'm trying to get through a record here and get to the next actual song song, these seven minute tracks that are just kind of creating textures. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we need them to be this long. Even even though you you consolidated all of the indu- or, uh, instrumental tracks to the second half of low, the, most of them were quite a bit briefer. Sure. I feel so you didn't have to uh, live with them for yeah you know the 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 length of Stairway yeah. to Heaven. I'm just curious. I mean, I so. like these, but this is but it's also because like this is this album. There are some songs you can just listen to by themselves, but in general, this is a sit down and and listen to it all in one sitting kind of album. And uh, when you do that, these add a lot. But um, I see what you mean. They they're not standouts. So um, speaking of no, and it's it, it's 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 it, them on top on top of the skits. It's too much. If it was just these or just the skits, maybe I'd be more forgiving to either of them. But uh, speaking of standout tracks, I have not been to Oxford Town. Um, this little bouncy tune is, uh, from the, another one from the perspective of Leon. He has now been arrested. He is, um, he is being questioned by the police and the, the murder happened in Oxford town, New Jersey, and he is begging for his life. He is trying to save himself. I have never been to Oxford town. I did not commit the murder. So this is like, um, this is a man scratching for a, for a, uh, alibi. And that's what the song is. Um, but you know, in and of itself, it's a it's a bouncy little uh, uh, number. Uh, it's catchy, um, pretty simple. Uh, what do you guys think about this one? I like the song. I like the. Uh, it's it, it's got it's got some good Bowie spoken word work in it, where it kind of does like a. Uh, it, it has the chorus and then. I mean, what's he saying, Eric? What's he saying in the spoken word part? He's like, you know, and I've never seen someone over there. I don't, I don't know what it is, uh, but it's that subdued spoken word Bowie that I, I, I dig. Yeah, he, it. yeah, he just kind of does stuff. that stuff in the in the bridges. Yeah, I like his uh, the verse of "Baby Grace is the victim, fourteen years of age." He's got a <laughs> a very dramatic theatrical presentation in his lyrics on this, which is which is fun. Yeah, well, Mark, what do you think? Also, I think the uh, the guitar work the guitar work is really uh, there's some good plucking going on in this track if you listen for yeah. it. Uh, some 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 good some good almost like a banjo plucks yeah. if you will. 
and uh, I'm not sure exactly what guitar player it is, but it, it works for me. It's a it's a it's a different style of a a Bowie song. The uh, the spoken word part. Um, I just got down to it in my notes there. Um, it's actually kind of a it's kind of a, a heartbreaking little part. Leon's like pretty much knows he's going to prison. He's stuck inside the system now, and he can hear like the New Year celebrations outside, and um, just you know you know, it can't be a part of it. That's, that's kind of what he's going into there. So anyways, Mark, what do you think? I'm a little less enthusiastic about this song than you guys are. Um, I won't, uh, deny or debate the idea that it's, it's very catchy. I mean, the melody does get stuck in your head. Um, it's very bouncy, like you said, Eric, and it lends itself to lyrics that would be more, light and airy as if you're going out shopping rather than, you know, discussing a murder victim. It just kind of got some lyrical dissonance from what you hear uh, musically. There's no like foreboding. It's just like if this was a stage play, it would be um, a pretty lively dance number, I would have to say. And I don't know. I mean, I, it's, it's probably the one of the uh, songs that, uh, yeah, I mean, you can essentially sing the melody by just saying the song title. And I don't know. I'm just not as enthusiastic about this one. Um, it is catchy. There's no denying it. This one reminds me reminds, reminds me of what you said about um, some of the tracks off Year Zero that were very story-based. I mean, this song does not have universal themes. This song is literally a man begging for his life. But if you don't know the story of the album, I have not been to Oxford Town means nothing. So it is, it is very seeped in story. And I, and I know, um, and I agree with you, Mark, that, that when there's no universal themes to a, to a song, it's going to limit the, the quality of it. And I think that's true. I just can't help but tap my foot to it, especially when I'm listening to the whole thing. I'm already yeah. sucked in. So, I mean, I, it's not a skippable track. I don't think that at um, all. I mean, I think that it's yeah. just, um, a little jarring, uh, because from where you've been, this is probably the first song that does give you a little bit of like, um, a little, it's a little bit, uh, a beat in terms of sound and tone. Um, and I mean, it's, it's all performed very well, but the rip chord kind of, you know, uh, sound of the guitar is just once again, just adding texture, not really leading the way. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't love this song. Uh, it's just interesting where it's at right in the middle. And what kind of what it's doing narratively? Sure. Someone pleading for their life and saying that they're not guilty of killing someone is, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's what's even weirder, and this is a fun little story um, that I only know because I picked up on it myself. Is this song is in the film Starship Troopers, and there, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but there's a scene where the troopers are at some like swanky party. And these dancers are on stage and it's not even Bowie. It's it's like the studio, the 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 Starship Troopers film composers are remaking the song. But instead of saying 20th century girl, they say 23rd century girl. But everything else is the same. It doesn't make any sense like the rest of that fucking ridiculous movie that everybody should watch because it's so bad. It's funny. Um <laughs> But anyways, I don't know if you guys ever noticed this song. Uh, I read it that it was, but I didn't. Uh, I mean, I haven't watched that movie in years. Oh, well, anything with Michael Ironside is worth a spin. 
even Highlander 2. All right, next track, No Control. If I can't control my destiny, no want me to start or you guys want to start this is a uh yeah this is a good this is a good song uh no control it actually i talked about this in the earthling episode some tracks you can pick up threads that i think were from black tie white noise this definitely gets you back to your uh your palace athena sound a little bit but less less plastic sounding uh and more timeless this is this is much more of a, a badass Miami Vice song to me. Um, I could picture them cruising around a boat with the Miami Vice music going, and uh, David Bowie, you know, looking off into the middle distance, singing these lyrics. I think it's a very, a very. I, I just come to the word badass uh, song. It was uh, written by Bowie and Eno, but I could definitely see Trent Reznor maybe producing a version of this song that would. Uh, uh, definitely fit into the vibe it already has. And uh, yeah, one, one thing I like about it also is the, the, uh, the vocal trick he does when he, he shifts into the, the if I can do, da, 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 da. it's kind of like a, a huckster Bowie, like looking right at you, trying to maybe sell you something. I, I don't know, but uh, it's a, it's a good track in Reeves. Reeves does some guitar wackadoodle nonsense in the background that it, it it's not showy, but on this track, I feel he brings something to the proceedings that makes it a better song. Um, yep, the song, uh, I, I, this song actually, one of my top tier, where was the song all my life songs? Uh, I, I dug it. Yeah, story wise, it's um, it's from. Detective Adler's point of view. And, you know, last we checked in with him, he was losing it because his past was coming back to haunt him, his past with Ramona Stone. Now he's like the anxiety of all these these people in the streets for New Year's, this this murder. It's all kind of cracking. It's it's all deranged, no control. Sit tight in your corner, don't tell God your plans. It's all deranged. And then that part you're talking about, Steve. If I can't control the web we weave, my life will be lost in falling leaves. Just somebody who likes everything in its place is um starting to crack starting to lose it um in these uh these kind of th- these end time moments that are happening uh, 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 in new year's leaving the story doesn't necessarily have to be tied to this the story of this this is one of those with with those themes of you know those that are planners definitely type a people and and uh when things um are not even type a people just you know people that think they have things figured out when things get out get lost when they don't have control over them, that anxiety that comes with it. Um, but you nailed what's good about the, the music in the song. I'm, I'm, a, I'm definitely a, a, a fan here. Yeah. Same so. for me. I think that uh, it just really works for me on a, both a musical and vocal level. Um, it's got uh, an excellent vocal performance by Bowie. It uh, really just has great atmosphere. I would even say some good rising action. 
And it, when I read as I was studying for this episode, I had to make sure that it was correctly um, cited because apparently this song is covered in the SpongeBob SquarePants stage musical in some form. I never heard it's correct. It, it, like I had to do a double take. Yes, if I if I may may digress slightly, um, two things. I was looking up Yossi Fine. Is that Yossi? Yossi? Uh, one of the bass players in this album. And he was the producer and the bass player for Naughty by Nature's Hip Hop Hooray. So he came up with that bass line. Oh. Yes. All right. And speaking of kids shows, so I was trying to, I finally finished the uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy again. I mean, I've watched it dozens of times uh, this morning at like 3 a.m. I started it uh, Father's Day weekend. What was that? Two day, two weekends ago now? And uh, yeah, it t- <laughs> took two weeks for me to get through this damn thing. And, uh, you know, various uh, you work and children and life. But uh, Towns was watching some of it with me and he kind of likes some of it. And then, you know, it's, it's a lot for a, a kid to take in. But uh, I said, all right, sure. break time. You can watch one of your shows. And uh, he's a big fan of a show called Bubble Guppies. Which is kind oh, sure. kind of like sure. SpongeBob SquarePants. Undersea. They're they're basically the snorks. And uh yeah, I turned off Lord of the Rings and I put bubble guppies on for them. And it was a total Lord of the Rings parody episode. Uh right down to like the music and the and and they even came up with like a title card that basically said like the, the Lord of the Bubbles or something. And uh it just cracked me up that he wanted me to turn Lord of the Rings off and I put his show on and it it was a Lord of the Rings parody. And they live they live under the sea, so maybe they're right next door to SpongeBob. Who knows? But right next door to this track is <laughs> a segue. Yeah, what, what is this here? Algeria to Shriek. What is this? This is that fake. Is, is this Esperanto? What is this? Mister Touch Shriek. Touch Shriek, my lover and fantasy. All right, Allegra Touch Shriek is uh, one of the is the third. Um, uh, uh, suspect that we have not got to meet yet is an old man in the liner notes it even says that it was never really like he's he's always been harmless he's been just on the outside of crime um, he's a sad broken man who who runs a little shop uh, like a convenience smart but also possibly sells prostitutes and and um to helps distribute Ramona's art drugs, uh, interest drugs, as they're called. But uh, this little thing gives us a little bit more details into the mystery. Talks about a Mr. Walloff Domberg who wants to rent the room above him. And also hearing strange sounds in the apartments above him, um, hearing baby Grace up there and then uh, nobody leaving, not seeing anybody, uh, ghost-like existence, uh, talking about how he knew Leon once, um, so, uh, kind of writing him off as a suspect, but, you know, hearing that there was some, you know, shit going on above him, uh, ridiculous, uh, he's a ridiculous little, little old man voice that Bowie's doing on this track. Um, I don't think you guys would have anything to say about it, but feel free if you do. Nope, we don't. The next track is The Voyeur of Utter Destruction as Beauty. And this is from the perspective of the artist slash minotaur. Let's hear a clip. 
Beyond having one of the best song titles in Bowie's whole catalog, which is ridiculous, uh, The Boyer of Utter Destruction, in parentheses as beauty, this song has a, a rising, driving action to it that is right up my alley. Uh, the, the, I, I think that might be guitar work during the opening of the song, but what it sounds like to me is kind of like a, a, a Chapman stick, Tony Levin, King Crimson kind of that kind of propels it forward. Um, I'm not sure. I honestly can't tell if it's, if it's bass work or guitar work. It's just got good, good, good forward driving action. And um, it kind of has a frantic pace to it. kind of makes you want to get up and clean the room or something. Like you might, when you listen to jazz music, you want to get up and move around. And when the beat kicks in and Garson's pianos kind of shade the song without derailing it, the rising action gets even more pronounced to the last minute of the song when the rising action changes keys and kind of crashes. It kind of erupts. I just, I think it's a kind of song where for the first two minutes, you might consider skipping it, but if you stick around for it, you will be rewarded. What do you think, Mark? I'm a big fan of uh, this song as well. Um, That driving pace um, from the noodling and yeah, I can't tell. I mean, it sounds like something that you would get from like a like a Peter Gabriel, uh, Tony Levin kind of uh, song or something like that. Yes, that's um, what I was thinking. But it's great. I mean, um, Bowie shows up like fucking great at the end of that, uh, towards the scene of the song. Like he just knows how to uh, use his voice um, in just the right way on the song. Um, and yeah, I... I I'm not really going to go and repeat exactly what you said because just, I mean, my, my main notes is just the mm-hmm. momentum and drive of this song is just something that uh, mm-hmm. makes you tap your feet. Eric. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this song is done from the perspective of the Minotaur, which is a, the name of the serial killer. So your Buffalo bill to this story although the name is never given in the liner notes or anything. So I think Bowie, Bowie did a lot of interviews about the story. There's actually a pretty good one on YouTube. Um, but yeah, I th- he must've named the Minotaur at some point, even though it wasn't in the, in the story. Um, and you don't get the identity of the Minotaur here. You just know that it's an artist. Um, you know, you can tell uh, they start lacing in that he's, got some drug dependencies that help him with his art. And without those drugs, uh, he starts uh, craving um, creation. And the only way he can really like reignite that passion in him is with pushing the, the edge and, and going past outsider art to like this murder 
this murder art, you know, with the same desire as this, the sober Philistine I shake for this reeking flesh as romantic as hell. Um, lines like that. Uh, uh, basically, he's, um, you know, in, in killing, he's able to give himself that same rush that he was getting before with the art drugs that obviously he got from Ramona Stone. So that, I mean, that's what the song, the song is kind of his perspective on what's driving him, kind of a, an almost a motive kind of thing. Um, I think it's great. I do love that Peter Gabriel <laughs> sounding guitar. I, I agree with you, Mark, on that. And uh, when Bowie goes, I say, I love that uh, <laughs> that part. That, get, that gets me in. Um, it's a transition song, but it's a lot of fun. And it's a, it's got a journey to it. And there's a warbly bass part that I think is is uh, is uh, uh, for the time capsule. It's, it's it's really good. So I'm with you guys. Solid. Yeah, I think it's a it's a great song. Uh, we're all everything we said is true. The only problem with this song is not with the song. I think that the poor bastard is overlooked possibly because they sandwich it between two skits and. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I think that doesn't. I think. I think that. I, I think that it might get literally lost in the shuffle here. Uh, that's too bad. So when I uh, he did play this when I saw him in concert. I imagine fun. this would be good live. This is the kind of song like you could do a. You could you could make this like a a, a track two or a, maybe even a track one to a live show to really get things kicked into hyperdrive. That, that's uh, it's, yeah. it's it's good stuff. Yeah. So speaking of segues, this next one here. I started with no enemies of my own. I was an artist in a tunnel. But I've been having a here. life. All right. So this one's a little interesting. It's a segue for Ramona A. Stone. But then it is it is it really, Eric? Is it really interesting? But then it actually has a half song t- tacked onto the end of it. So. It's Romain A. Stone slash I am with name. I am with name. I am Ramona Ray Stone. And she should say. I am Lamp. <laughs> I am your clock. Peter O'Toole. You know what's interesting? The one thing that I will have to say about this song is we had a a common friend in our life that is not really around anymore. And anytime that we would talk about this album with that person, he would always reference this song. I am an artist, (laughs) that part. So whatever it is, this is the song that stuck out in his mind. (laughs) Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's, this is our dominatrix character. She's, um, what, what do you call a futurist, uh, tyrannical futurist wanting, wanting the, the masses to be crushed by a jackboot and conform. Um, and she wants to drive that work through her art. Um, and she also pushes this, this interest drugs that clearly got, Maybe Grace hooked, got maybe the Minotaur hooked, and she's kind of running this circle. Um, uh, she's saying, like, you know, I start with no enemies of my own. I was an artiste in a tunnel. Um, uh, but then start what she wants. A person loses the name, then anxiety starts descending. So, you know, in her world of of this, like, fascist tyranny, you know, when everybody becomes the same, then there's no anxiety anymore. That's what, that's what she wants. Um, and then it switches into, uh, 
the I am with name, which is straight out of the Leon sessions. It's just a little jam. Um, Bowie sings uh, the I am with name part a little bit. And uh, anyways, that's that's the song. Next track. I, I don't know. I, I think things are trending in the wrong direction. Uh, let me see. My notes say uh, from the ball files. Wishful ah. beginnings. <laughs> You're a little girl. You're a sorry little girl. All right, Eric. So uh, apparently this is a, a yet again from the perspective of the artist slash minotaur. Yes. And this is one of the most uh, just kind of transition songs in here. It's it's basically the same song we we just heard. This song was actually cut off the record um, for length uh, many times. I think like three different releases did not include this song on it. It's essentially Voyeur of Utter Destruction lyrically, story-wise. Um, Flames burn my body, wishful begins this reminding them again and again, you're a sorry little girl. So he's planning for his ritual. Uh, um, flames, you know, burning out the old, so there can be a as this whole this whole New Year's ritual that Bowie keeps talking about in interviews. This is describing that. Um, no longer a boring, go- your your golden boy, sorry little girl. Um, it's, cl- it's a little clue to the ident- idea of the Minotaur, but not a lot, not a lot to go on. Um, we had such wishful beginnings kind of talking about in a way it's like, you know, they started out as this art collective and then it turned to murder. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's a weird song. It has atmosphere. Um, but this isn't one I'm, it, you know, this is what I'm going to take with me. Yeah, same. I mean, it's uh, just get a very cinematic feeling from the atmospheric music. Uh, more character work. It sounds like, yeah, during the act of a murder taking place. Uh, the only thing that really kills me is it really wears out its welcome within the five minute running time. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot to ask for. Um, is is essentially a fluffed up segue song, and it's yeah. just needs to be a little bit shorter, if you ask me. I do love the boo ah ah. I think it's kind of creepy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I do. I like. I like that too. I think. I think that would be good in a like a mid nineties adventure game, in the background while you're doing other things, but not for a song asking for my attention. Sure. No, that's fair. That's fair. But that brings us to we prick you. White boys falling on the fires of night. <laughs> Flesh sponge burning in their gloom Revolution comes in the strangest way I'd rather be inside you Revolution comes in the strangest way. This song is um, actually from the perspective of the Court of Justice. These are the people that are judging Leon. He is on trial now for the murder of Baby Grace. He's been denying it. 
He had nothing to do with it. Um, and this is kind of like a very, like, uh, essentially scathing look at maybe the legal system. We prick you. It has a lot of sexual overtones, but like essentially just people getting, let's just say, uh, abused and molested by the legal system. And uh, in a way, I think the part that's the most uh, timeless in its message is where it's like, you will show respect even if you disagree, which is like, um, you don't get to, you don't get to deny it. And you can't be angry about it. You must show respect. You must accept. Like it, basically, it's coercing a a uh, a confession out of Leon in this. But it's like that little the little the little chipmunk voice. Yeah, you know, you show respect even if you disagree. Is like you. I know you think it's wrong, but you don't get to protest. That is uncouth to protest. Um, and uh, anyways, uh, it's essentially just the pressure from the system of of getting Leon to admit to these crimes even though he didn't do it and uh it is a you know uh programmed um you know the drum and bass in this that's not a lot of that on this album a lot of it's live drums but you know did do the drum and bass loops on this um little marimba there for you um and uh anyways it's um it's one of those songs that's story based but has a universal message i like it bowie's vocals are poppy and catchy as hell um, tell the truth is a hell of a hell of a, a chorus because it's not the truth. You know, Leon, I think it's clear Bowie doesn't, Bowie's saying Leon didn't do it, but uh, it's that demanding to tell the truth. It's uh, oppressive I, and, and Bowie sells it. I like the song. It starts out like that Bjork song. Um, I think it's called The Hunter. Uh, I'm uh, it, which came out after this, of course, um, but it just reminded me of it. Um, but it really quickly becomes its own thing, has some funky bass. Um, just to me, there's just something seems just a little off, like it's missing a couple elements to make it great. Um, I, I agree with you that tell the truth is uh, hell, hell of a catchy part. Um, it's harmless just seems like there's something like missing some missing ingredient i can't put my finger on it but it is as it you know it's fine it's not one of my my highlights of the record but it's harmless has an 80s feel to it a little bit um with that brittle guitar line providing the hook um i like it it's not bad but it's like i said i always have to be reminded of what this song is whenever i talk about it I tend it's, it's one it's, of those forgettable ones. It's it's mid tier on this album. Yeah. yeah. He'll let us know what he thinks about We Prick You. Uh so the next segue is Adler One. Oh Touch Week was the main name, so you suspected of being a shoulder so But he didn't know. Adler is talking about, uh, he's ruling out people. Touch Shriek definitely didn't do the murder. Um, he's talking a little about Ramona and her drugs that she's pushing and that those drugs definitely tie into the murder. And, um, 
And basically, he's really not convinced on Leon either, even though Leon's already going to do the time. Um, and these are all done out of order, so who knows when this takes place. It's just it's just a way for Bowie to do his Boston accent or whatever 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 weird dialect he's doing in this, which which is fun. Um, I'm sure you you don't have much to say. The next Adler one is 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 uh, not much better, uh, but I'll get to that when we get to it. I mean, it just really just seems that it's Bowie just trying to catch the listener up on the plot thus far. Um, and then he really is dusting off his Philip Jeffries um, routine. So you got to love it. <laughs> yeah. Not so much the Southern bell as, as Philip Jeffries, but uh, um, certainly that hard boiled frantic, hard boiled thing. And in the story, Adler's losing his mind. So that's that. But that brings us to I'm deranged. Funny how secrets travel. That uh, that that line, that that funny how secrets travel. Uh, at, at some point in our lives, that became the joke and the punchline in itself. Just saying that out loud would make us laugh. It's true, yeah. and it really came because we probably heard this song first off of the. Uh, well, me and Steve probably heard it first off of the Lost Highway soundtrack. Um, right. And that's how the uh, movie both ends, uh, begins and ends. Because when things go crazy, all of a sudden you hear Bowie's just acapella version of Funny How Secrets Travel. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There's so much and, confidence and, uh, in this yeah, song, little... though. I gotta love it. It does. It does. Cruise me blonde. Cruise me bla- babe. Yeah. Uh... This is apparently done from the Minotaur's perspective, and this is really digging into um, that 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 need of reaching the artistic heights of when he, you know, of of of, of the drugs and trying to find those elsewhere. Um, the blonde is apparently a reference to a uh, Lebanese blonde uh, strain of hashish, according to Bowie. That's what that's a that's a reference to. I don't know if that's true or not, but apparently. That's true. Uh, The song has a ton of atmosphere. It has uh, a lot of that drum and bass thing, but it it hits a little bit harder on this than we than we prick you. This is the other drum and bass song on here. It hits it hits harder. I do see an inception for Earthling on here quite a bit. Um, He references it's the angel man. Um, And uh, he's brought up in Look Back in Anger and of course, Man Who Sold the World. It's been long. The fans have long thought those songs were connected by this angel of death, kind of the same character. Those songs done from different perspectives. Um, and uh, this one is um, kind of this idea that the, the, what happens when the angel of death shows up to somebody who is deranged, is beyond saving, is a brutal murderer. Um, you know, what, what what the rules of afterlife, how does that apply um, in that situation? So... Uh, this is all, it's all a very abstract song. I can't really tie it to the story beyond that. Um, and uh, apparently Carlos Alomar played on this song and, and, um, did not make the cut. Uh, 
but uh, you can't beat the atmosphere on the song. Yep, if you want to hear more thoughts about this song, you can always check the five-year gap episode from season one. I think it's a great song. I've always liked this song. It was part of my introduction to Bowie. It was it was part of a, a general stew that was going on in the mid-90s there. But Eric, you are right. This does point to the direction of Earthling. And I don't think any songs on Earthling do what they try to do as well as they do here. I think a little would have gone a long way with Earthling. Uh, right. uh, you know, have have the drum and bass be a shading to the songs, not the point of the songs. And you get a song as good as this. You, get, uh, you got yeah. a good point because there's not a lot of atmosphere on Earthling. And I don't think we know. I don't think I at least I didn't pick up on that when we were listening to it because I was just thinking of it through a jungle kind of drum and bass perspective. But when you hear the drum and bass with actual atmosphere on the song, it's like, oh, shit, that elevates it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got the drum beat. You've got those beats. And you've got that bass, but then you've got the, you know, the layer of synths on top of it, the Bowie or that Eno brings. And I think David Bowie's vocals bring a lot to it. His vocal stylings, he he's going for like an ethereal kind of mystical approach in this track. And I think it works very well. Uh, and, and on the chorus that uh, the the before the I'm deranged the, and the rains come in, it's uh, oh, yeah. he delivers that perfectly and garson's piano work on it it's you know i i we we've we've done a disservice to mike garson on previous episodes of this podcast because when he was utilized uh, they really went for the avant-garde and sometimes if you're trying to write a rock song the avant-garde piano playing is just gonna unhinge things now, this is coming from the guy that liked Aladdin Sane the most on the show. And I think that on this album, they managed to... This is Mike Garson's best work with Bowie, hands down, in my opinion. And this track is another one that's some of the first Mike Garson I ever heard in my life 25 years ago. And um, it works perfectly. His piano work in this track really, really just uh, ties the room together. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and still... It has a little bit of that black tie, white noise production, but it doesn't date it. I, I, I just continue to think that in the middle of the 90s, in 1995, David Bowie's best work was this album. And there's shades of what he does in the next one and what he did in Black Tie, White Noise. And somewhere in the middle between those two records, he was able to make something uh, that, that worked a lot better as a whole than the ideas that were on those two records. And this is another song that's a, a testament to that. Good, good track. Um, just a proof in the pudding as far as uh, kind of what was missing from Earthling was Mark Plotty, who produced Earthling, did a, re a jungle remix of this song. And it takes out all the atmosphere. And it, um, I would say it falls pretty flat. So, um, and the rain sets in. It's the angel man. Kind of uh, the song already has that drum and bass, and then just to just to go double down and go all in on that, um, and take out the atmosphere really does a disservice. Alrighty, cool. Uh, what does this bring us to? Um, Through these this architect's us eyes. 
Again, this is another track that sounds like what they started on Black Tie White Noise, but they perfected here. Uh, the title of the song, Through These Architects' Eyes, that's a wonderful song title. And the song behind it, with its rising vocal action, it's semi-plastic sounding horns, but not too plastic. And the, 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 the this is kind of like a, a, a late stage capitalism, uh, let's dance chairman of the board Bowie uh, singing on this track. It, it works for me. Um, yeah, this actually, it kind of went to my uh, instant favorite file. I, I really enjoyed, I, I was surprised by how much I liked this song. And the line, all the majesty of a city landscape, I think it is, is uh, absolutely preposterous to me. I, I think this song, it, it, it works well. Um, Mark, what do, you, what do you think of this track? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum on this one. Um, it, uh, for me, it kind of started out like a Tin Machine song, but I think it's more apropos to really say it's a black tie white noise with Mike Garson on it. It doesn't do much for me. I got a little bored with the melody and it didn't really contain any hook to keep me engaged or interested. I think Bowie does a good job of showing an effort, but um, I just didn't really feel like there was anything to really sink my teeth into on this one. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I It didn't do it for me. Eric, what, what did you think? Split the difference here. Uh, yeah, I'm. Yeah, I, it is a splitting of the difference. I'm somewhere in between. Um, I would consider this more of like a middle tier song on this album. Um, lyrically, though, it's it's top notch. Uh, there, there's an argument to be made uh, that it story wise, you know, this is from Leon's perspective. Um, it could have taken place before the murder ever happened. It could be taking place while he's in prison and he's looking out at the skyline. Um. And he's just, you know, and he references architects like Richard Rogers and Philip Johnson uh, in the lyrics. Um, Apparently, uh, at one point, Bowie scrapped all of his lyrics for Heart's Filthy Lesson and just referenced architects. (laughs) And Reeves was like, no, bud. No, nope, nope, nope. (laughs) So Bowie still got his way and brought it back in this song. Um, And it's in, you know, uh, universal themes. It's looking at this kind of this idea of, you know, when art is so powerful where you're creating cityscapes and you're changing the skyline, then, you know, this idea of like, you know, humans have no need for God anymore. We can create our own, you know, we can't basically create our own, you know, worlds at this point. We have no need for God. That's kind of the, the theological perspective of the song I think is really strong. And the fact that, um, it's story-wise it's from the perspective of this artist Leon that Bowie really identified with. He liked this character. He was an outsider, tried to push the boundaries, got involved with some bad people, but was not a murderer. He kind of, he still had ethics and he's, and he's looking and marveling at, you know, essentially, you know, what has God done for him when art, you know, is this new, this new religion. Um, and I think it's powerful lyrics. The song itself, um, doesn't necessarily have the hooks. I, I, I kind of agree with Mark there, but it has a pleasant sound to it all the way through. Um, I wouldn't call this a skippable song either. It's um, 
and I definitely see like this would be black tie white noise with good production and um, just the right amount of edginess to elevate it. I, 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 I yeah, I like it. I do like it. All right. Well, Eric, here's your last chance to talk about the <laughs> detective Nathan Adler and his diary. <laughs> When she broke it off with Liam, uh, this one is um, it's funny. It's a, it's essentially just totally out of timeline. Is Nathan Adler is just reviewing when Ramona, uh, not Ramona, um, when uh, Leon and Baby Grace broke up right before she died, and um, you know she was she was clearly stuck in the this whole world of drugs, and he got out at just the right time. Um, and we never get an answer as we'll find out in the next song of, of who the killer is. Um, it's been uh, heavily theorized on the, I went to probably about five different blogs. <laughs> There's a lot of blogs for this album, by the way, that, uh, that Adler is, is really the Minotaur and the I'm deranged and the, the other song wishful beginnings or whatever, all the deranged, like it all ties together and, and it's clearly him. Uh, I find that like that whole split personality, the cop is the killer stuff, pretty cheesy. <laughs> it reminds me of the three from Adaptation. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't know. It, Bowie purposely doesn't tell you who done it. Um, if I was making a movie of this or something, I'd probably use one of the better theories in one of the mini blogs I read. It would probably be more like that rich guy who's trying to rent a the apartment above Mister Touch Shriek, and he's commissioning these artists to do this murder art that's more interesting to me than having a split personality detective but it could be that who knows um but uh there's there's plenty of theories out there uh yeah so anyways that's that's the last i'll say about that uh the next song uh of course i will find a way to tie it into the story but uh do you guys have anything else to say about nathan adler no <laughs> no, let's let's everybody let's sounds pretty the... disappointed that David Bowie would have made the cop is the killer the whole time. <laughs> I was very disappointed too. I don't think that's the case though. I think uh I think he left it open enough where it doesn't have to be. Well, if uh if if his son ever gets around to making the sequels here, I'll uh you know, Christopher Tolkien will uh, will find out. <laughs> That brings us to the closing track, Strangers When We Meet. No trendy reshafe, I'm with you, so I can't go on. All my violence, raining tears upon the sheets. I'm bewildered for Second time we've discussed this song. The first time was for the uh, Buddha of Suburbia album. And that was a trial run for this version. I prefer this version. And I think this is a very interesting way to close out this album. And I really actually like it because 
you've got this album that's full of darkness and murder and industrial bloops and bleeps. And the closing track is kind of... Now, lyrically, if you actually read the lyrics, there's some ambiguity to just how dark these lyrics are. I think you can go one way or the other. But the song itself sounds very upbeat, and I think that's a pretty cool way to close such a an album with such heavy material. Uh, Marco, what do you what do you think about Strangers? So Me? it's not a bad song by any means. Um, it it it's really just in stark contrast from what you uh, have heard all the way up into this point, where it sounds like you know, the credits are rolling and everything is just all nice and tidied up in a nice little bow. So the video for it and even the music for it, it does sound like something that's geared for the Video Hits 1 network, or VH1 as I like to call them. Um, so it's a strange song. It's not a bad song or anything like that. I just I feel that it was shoehorned in on this one a little bit too hard for me. Um, Eric, how does this relate? And I er, earlier asked, like, how does it relate to the rest of what's going on here? Because I, I'm sure. not seeing it. Yeah, it, it, let me give you a let me give you a a way I'm a way I'm looking at it. Um, okay, so the song in itself, we talked about this already on. Um, Boot of the Suburbia, the lyrics just taken as they are. It's a breakup song, but it's got a positive twist to it. It's somebody kind of coming to terms. And you're right, Steve, there is some dark stuff in the lyrics, but it's not... It's like there are bad times, there are good times in a relationship, but it ended. And getting over that ending and moving on, um, that's where the triumph kind of is in this song. Um, And uh, and that's fine. But... um, and if you look on if Wikipedia, they even attribute this song to be from Leon's perspective. He'll head so let me give you my kind of idea on this. Bowie wanted to make an album that didn't fit any kind of pop structure at all. And so with that, if he was going to make a murder mystery, he's not going to wrap it up nicely in a bow for you. He is going to leave that murder mystery plot because he clearly loves this character, Leon. And towards the end, Leon has broken up with a girlfriend and then she's murdered. So he has to get over that relationship and mourn her death. And you have this triumphant song at the end of him kind of doing both. Now, granted, if you take the story for what it is, he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail because he was wrongly accused of it. But he is... um, you know, he is basically re- realizing that, you know, he takes the good with the bad um, and uh, we're strangers when we meet. So like moving forward, uh, that's going to be water under the bridge and um, and, and you just got to move on. And it's just a, it's just a little song about moving on. But it, the way that the tones that work in this song and the, the uh, piano work and the it's just it's just in its way, it's it's got a power to that moving on theme um so just leave it to bowie that he would his climax to his story was not the solving the murder mystery at all it was the character that was the best person out of all of it kind of dealing with that death dealing with the morning and dealing with that this loss of a relationship and moving on um and that's kind of where i'm going with it that and i don't know it works for me in that way maybe i sound like a crazy person 
No, I, I could see that, but all and also, even if I didn't see it, the fact that I find all of the storytelling of this album to be secondary, if it doesn't tie into anything, I really don't care because I think it's a very pleasing to my ears sounding song. It sounds like a mid nineties pulp song, which I can get down with. And I feel that Reeves Gabrell's guitar tones, like atmosphere he's going with works really well. I think that baseline, that do, 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 it's not doing too much, but it works here. Uh, Mike Garson's piano work definitely does give it that the credits are rolling and you're driving off into the sunset vibe. All of it just really works together for me to make like what I think could have been a really like should have been a hit single. And again, I think if people were uh, giving David Bowie in the mid nineties, more of the time of day, it would have been a hit single, which is why I think he released it twice. I felt, I feel like he was like, the song's going to stick. God damn it. We are going to make fetch happen. And uh, it still didn't happen. Um, uh, people love this but, uh, song. No, I, I, I mean, it's all, in its own way. It, yeah, is, no, it I, did I, stick, but. It, it definitely, you know, if it were to shuffle on on a greatest hits soundtrack, or I'm sorry, greatest hits album, it would fit thematically just as much as it does in this album. It's not, you know, the only reason it fits on this album is because it's the last song, I think. Because it sounds like a closer. But uh, it definitely, as, as far as, uh, yeah, the, the everything that comes before it, it sounds like it kind of comes out of nowhere. But the, in my my opinion, it doesn't make me like it any less. Well, musically though, it fits. It fits the the palette they're 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 painting with. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, but yeah, to to be a triumphant song in this, it's just uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of weird. A palette, but, but music palette, palette wise, I mean, it's it's a lot more straight ahead structured than some of these songs on here. I think it sounds more like just a rock song. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, like I keep saying pulp, it sounds, it sounds like a Brit pop song to me. Yeah. That's, that's the only version. Well, yeah. Did you guys listen to this, this B side get real? Yes, yes, and it sounded. It sounds like Bowie had a a song from his "Never Let Me Down" era that he just couldn't let go. So he had his band perform it, and it and they threw it on the B side to something. One of the one of the singles from this. Did you guys listen to it? It was the B side to "Strangers When We Meet." Ah. Yeah, I didn't care for it. I uh, it falls into the realm, the bucket of like real cool world or anywhere that style that just lands mm-hmm. between Never Let Me Down and Black Tie White Noise. Just thankful that the outside did not follow that um, that style. Boy, it's funny. It, it sounds it, part of it almost sounds like a like a, a, a tin machine b-side to me which is odd because it was written by bowie nino so the the well the well was tapped on that relationship by the time they got around to putting this thing out it's wild yeah um the other b-side was the nothing to be desired nothing to be desired it means nothing to be desired 
one was on the Hearts Filthy Lesson single. Uh, this one was pulled straight from the Leon Sessions. Um, this gives you an idea what's on there. This was just a little, like, half of a movement on there. Um, it's uh, some freeform jazz um, and some Bowie vocals, and then it kind of rips into a tribal chant, which um, apparently is the same sample that Eno used on that fantastic David Byrne album, uh, uh, My Life in the Bush with Ghosts. Um, and, uh, yeah, this one's interesting. Um, like I said, it's, you know, it's no surprise if you heard the Leon sessions, but, um, that gives you a taste of what's on there. Did you guys listen to that one? There's like, f no, I uh, say not. again, which one are we talking about? Nothing to be desired. Yeah. That's the, uh, song that, uh, seems to match up the title of the song for me. Right. <laughs> yeah. It describes yeah. itself. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yes, we've we've reached the Bob Hope uh, <laughs> hour of our podcast. Oh yeah, um, right. Uh, there was a couple uh, appearances that he did on other stuff around here, right? So they re-released Ava Cherry. Uh, Ava Cherry. So they, they they did like an Ava Cherry re-release, and it had a a Bowie written song uh, called "People from Bad Homes" that. Had never seen the light of day before. Um, it sounds like a Bowie song when she sings it. It's it's kind of cool. The sound quality is really bad. I don't know if you guys uh, sought that one out. Nope. Striking out. Didn't check that one out. Yeah. <laughs> Reeves Gabriels did a solo album called The Sacred Squall of uh, something here. The Sacred. Learn how to read, Eric. Sacred Squall of Now. <laughs> And um, it's a uh, it's a strange little uh, solo record um, in I was reading a review of it and it said basically every time Reeves opens his mouth, you kind of admittedly like regret listening to it. He's not a good vocalist, and having listened to a few tracks, I, I can I can kind of confirm that. Um, there is a cool song uh, called "You've Been Around" with Bowie and Gary Oldman. It's fine. It's fine. It's not a. It's not gonna wind up on anybody's top top fifty list, but uh, it's worth it. It's worth a seek. Is, is Gary Oldman singing on it? He's actually singing. Right. Gary Oldman's done like Bowie tribute concerts before. <laughs> he's a he's he's a big mm -hmm. fan. He's a big fan. I assume they were probably friends. At this time, uh, was was uh, it was a Mick Rock called "The Whole of Heaven," and Bowie sings a Dylan cover like a Rolling Stone. <laughs> He does a good job. He does a good job. Um, and then it's, it's posthumous. Uh, Ronson had died. And then apparently at that um, that Queen tribute show, Mick Ronson, Queen, and uh, Bowie came out and did all the young dudes. And it's an epic. And they backed it up with Heroes, and it's like an epic nine-minute rock out. And that's on the album as well. And it's it's worth checking out. It's fun. 
Great. So, right. and that's all so, the extra. Uh, so, shit. All right. Uh, okay. Just, uh, I'm gonna talk for a second. God damn it. So before we uh, rate this album, got quite a bit of feedback on this one. We'll go through it really quickly. It seems that uh, the majority of the David Bowie fan base really enjoy this record. And uh, Alex Alt said that uh, it was one of the first five Bowie albums he got because he liked uh, Hello Space Boy. And uh, he's looking, he, he, he thought it was filler heavy, but he's looking forward to revisiting it after the podcast. And his favorite song was Strangers When We Meet. And Amber Lee agreed with him. David Faust, friend of the show, it's a very underrated masterpiece, and I'm inclined to agree. Uh, elsewhere on the social networks, uh, our friend Nin Shirts, aka Chris Reed, uh, hasn't given outside the proper love it deserves. Strangers When We Meet is one of his all-time favorite Bowie songs. Loves the intensity of Hollow Space Boy, and uh, he's heard a little bit of the story. And uh, he he does like the influence, uh, the, the the influence it has story wise, similar to Diamond Dogs of the dystopian future. So I'm sure he'll really enjoy all of your storytelling tonight, Eric. Uh, CJ Stardust says it's one of his favorite Bowie albums, definitely his best in Scary Monsters. And actually, I will agree, this was finally the album that lived up to the best since Scary Monsters, not as good as Scary Monsters. But uh, it got it got it got close, it, it, you know, quality wise, you know, ranking wise, maybe not. But uh, everything that came in between Scary Monsters and this, I'd say this was the best. Finally, the best album since Scary Monsters. And uh, DM Mavar says it's a top five Bowie album. And also friend of the show, Joe Vieira, old guest of the show. Uh, it's one of his top Bowie albums, the one that got him into David Bowie, and he could probably do a whole podcast himself about this album. But uh, also, friend of the show Nick Valente, uh, he contacted us because he's got this pretty incredible story about David Bowie, um, about the song from outside Small Plot of Land, and about the jazz band that backed Bowie on Black Star, and it's it's incredible. Um, and couldn't fit it into you know our show proper, but I I don't want to leave it out there unheard because it's great. So I've added it to uh, to this episode. When we're done talking, when we roll for the next episode, then you'll hear Nick's story. It's fantastic. So please stick around and listen. Phenomenal. All right, great. Um, thank you everyone for always participating in our. Uh... Our, our polls on what you think, because we love to share those with the world. Um, but me personally, I'm going to go ahead and rank this 3.5 out of 5. Lightning Bolts, it's a strong record with a little bit too meandering at times, but for the most part, strong concept here, strong commitment to that narrative, and... Uh, some really, really artistic, catchy songs all throughout. Good stuff. 3.5 is my score. I will go ahead and, um, like I already warned, my nostalgia is going to take over here, so nobody should hold me to this, but I'm going to give it a 4.5 out of 5. 
It just means so much to me. And the songs that hit, hit for me as hard as, as his best songs. Um, I think the albums that I've scored five out of five are Scary Monsters and um, Low. And I definitely reducing it a 0.5 because I know my nostalgia is getting in the way. And I do know it is meandering. And you're all absolutely right about all that. But um, it just means a lot to me, this album. This album got me on the Bowie train. Um, and yeah, there's about six songs on here that uh, were bangers in 95 and are still to this day. I will give it a 3.5. Uh, I liked it a lot more than I thought I liked it. It's a strong record, despite how much it meanders. And I, I actually think I've, you know, I could do this. I could just delete all the skits and the songs I don't like and get this thing down to about 45 minutes of music. And it probably would be bumped up to a four, but uh, that's not what we're doing. We're grading the whole and uh, yeah, just too much. Really, really, you know, could have just done with a little bit less of uh, all the lore, because in this case, I just I wasn't feeling it. I the the the, the future detective the murder mystery. I'm sorry, Eric. In, the, in this case, either the way it's presented with all the funny pitch shifting voices or or whatever it was. I just uh, didn't do a lot for me, but the songs themselves, they did do a lot for me for the most part. And I think there's some very strong songs on here that'll go into my, uh, my, my, my David Bowie time capsule. So there you go. So good stuff. We've got two albums left, the diamond dice. And here's how we're going to do it. If we roll anything higher than a five, we're going to listen to hours. If we roll anything lower than a five, we're going to listen to heroes. All right, Eric. That's a seven. Oh, boy. I forgot what my father Ours it is. <laughs> hey, so that... Very that, interesting. That, that, that tells us, though, we got hours, and then we got... We get to end with heroes. That's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Yep. Very interesting that all his 90s, the black tie, white noise aside in Buddha Suburbia, but his 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 last three albums of the 90s all came in a row. That is crazy. That's crazy. exactly what we tried. Exactly what we were trying to avoid. <laughs> Bound to. So that's true. All right. Well, before we go to the fireworks factory, we have to take a detour to the box factory. So that's what we're going to do. And as always. Thank you for joining us, and we hope that we brought you closer to pod. Hey, how's it going, guys? This is Nick from New York, uh, metaphorically phoning in with a little Bowie story. So I probably started liking and getting into Bowie's music, uh, I don't know, maybe like 13, 14, you know, the classic tracks. Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, Heroes, Let's Dance. Nothing too deep, but, you know, always loved Bowie. Always respected him as an artist. Didn't know how deep his catalog went, but knew he was someone not to be reckoned with. But uh, this story starts somewhere in probably 2009 or 10. 
probably 2010. Um, I went with some friends to this show at the Jazz Standard on 27th Street, Manhattan to see this group. But I didn't know the name of the group and I didn't really know anybody in the group except for the drummer, Mark Juliana, and the bass player, Tim Lefebvre. And I had always heard about how awesome they were as a rhythm section and always wanted to see them. Uh, Mark Juliana has a group called Beat Music and at the time they were just kind of getting started, I believe. But it was Mark Juliana on drums and Tim Lefebvre on bass and then um, some other... I think also Jason Linder on keys in that band. So we went down to the show. Uh, my friend was taking drum lessons with Mark at the time. And we went down to see them. And I didn't know who the sax player or the trumpet player was, but they were all just absolute master musicians, just blowing minds all over the place. And uh, when the show was over, we went over, went up and, you know, talked to Mark a little bit, and, you know, sang his praises, because they all absolutely killed it. And, um, you know, we just had to fan out a little bit. And if you fast forward, I guess, to like 20, fall of 2015, or re very beginning of 2016, I was reading a, a magazine, because I had heard that Mark Giuliano was going to be on the new Bowie album, and I got super excited, and then I found out that uh, Tim Lefebvre was also going to be on the album, Jason Linder was going to be on the album, and the sax player Donna McCaslin was going to be on the album, so I had gotten pretty excited about hearing all this because I had kind of been searching for this band, and to find out who this sax player is for so many years, and I don't know, maybe it was just my lack of like internet savviness that I didn't just look it up but I finally found this name Dinah McCaslin was the band leader and I read the story about how Bowie went down to the 55 bar because someone told him that you need to go check out this band I think it's the musicians you need for your next album so obviously you know we all know the story Bowie goes down to the 55 bar kind of in disguise as he would when he would travel around Manhattan, and um, they, they, they do the gig, and, you know, Bowie just kind of vanishes into the shadows, and it was like, oh, is that Bowie? Was that Bowie? What, what, what the hell? They look like Bowie, and then, you know, they get the infamous phone call, and he recruits them for the album. So, you know, here I am, looking at this magazine reading and I finally find out who this sax player is and my mind is blown that this band that I was so taken back by this amazing band of musicians were going to be Bowie's backing band for his upcoming album so I was really anticipating the album and I still hadn't gotten deep into Bowie yet but I was really looking forward to hearing the sound that he was cultivating because, you know, at that time I was really into jazz and really into modern jazz. I still am, but it was really like the flames were hot at that point. And 
so the album comes out, I think it was January 8th when the album came out, and I'm completely just amazed by how great the music is and, and what he did and how he used his sound with these modern jazz musicians. And then like two days later or something like that, he, he dies. So I think the news broke on a Monday that he died. And um, that Thursday, me and, uh, me and my wife were in this funk band, Days of Wild, and we always did Thursday nights on Bleecker Street at Red Lion, and we started at 1 a.m. It's pretty insane to start a funk gig at 1 a.m., but we would do it every Thursday, playing like Sly and the Family Stone, James Brown, Prince, Parliament, Funkadelic stuff. And the drummer, the band leader, was a huge Bowie fan. And when the album came out, we were both really, really into it. And then he died and, you know, we're just like kind of just heartbroken, but also, you know, just so amazed that this, you know, probably one of the greatest artists to ever live, recording artists at least, with 30, 40 years of amazing music, puts out his last album, which to me is one of his best albums, and one of his most innovative albums, and he references his own death in the album multiple times on different songs, and then he dies like it was, almost like it was planned, like, how do you, you know, what, what other way to sign off, like, from life, by putting out one of your most groundbreaking albums with a completely different sound that you've ever dabbled in and then you die like a few days later so the band leader wanted to do a uh, you know a couple Bowie songs as like a tribute you know just like a, a small tribute for the night so he was like all right you know we'll, we'll do uh, we'll do heroes and then we'll, we'll like we'll fake it and we'll do let's dance and then learn the the last song on the album and we'll do that song. So, you know, I had to learn, it's not a complicated song, but you know, within a couple days and I'm working full time and I had to learn, I can't give everything away. And, you know, we played it that night. Most of the band had never even heard the song. So it's kind of, you know, the drummer's directing and I'm, you know, leading the, the band of these like super accomplished New York you know, street musicians who are just some of the best in, in the city, and I'm leading them on this Bowie song. It was a pretty special moment, and um, I mean, Bowie's pretty special to all of us, and, and you know, I, I really started getting into him then, and that's when I was learning how to dog room, which is what I do now, and I spent all that time really just like diving deep into Bowie's albums, you know, listening and listening and listening to each album over and over, one album after the other, and um, so when it came time to name my business, of course, I couldn't think of any better name than Diamond Dogs, and, you know, every time I tell that to people, most people don't get it, and then the people who do, it's like, yes, you know, you understand, so um, fast forward a couple more years to uh, the Cold and Black and Infinite tour, my wife and I go down to Radio City to see 
Nine Inch Nails play, and uh, Trent starts talking about how it's very, you know, strange and kind of sad to be in New York City without Bowie's presence, and he gives this really heartfelt story about what Bowie meant to him and how he's never really gone, but, you know, he's always there, and then they do this amazing, beautiful, just ambient cover of I Can't Give Everything Away, and me and my wife got so super excited about it, because we had covered that song a few days after it came out, and now, you know, a couple years later, we're watching Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails do this amazing version of it, and we were probably, like, two... (laughs) two of the only people in the whole crowd who, who knew what the song was so that was like extra awesome points for us and um, one more little bit of uh, Bowie awesomeness and, and trivia just to bring it around full circle to Black Star. we recently uh, I showed her the video for uh, I'm Afraid of Americans and we're watching it and it opens up with that shot of Bowie standing on that corner um in the West Village on Christopher Street. And, you know, as soon as it opens up, I recognize the corner. I'm like, oh my God, that's Christopher Street. How how awesome is that? And if you look kind of off to the left, there's like a little park and then some small apartment buildings there in the background. And the most awesome thing I thought about it was that he's standing there. I mean, he obviously lived in Soho, you know, a couple blocks from there. But right in that spot where those buildings are, is the 55 bar where Bowie went to go see Donna McCaslin's um, quartet. And that's, uh, I just thought that was really, really awesome and a way to bring it around full circle. So that's my story. Hopefully I didn't bore you guys too much and you enjoyed it. Hopefully there was something interesting in there for you. Love the podcast. Looking forward to wrapping it up. Hopefully uh, the Diamond Dice are kind and uh, Hours comes out first and then you can finish it off with Heroes because that would be the most awesome way to go out, I'd say. And looking forward to the next season.